Namaste and good evening. This talk was originally scheduled on January 30th, which is Martyrs Day. It would have been perhaps ideal to hold the talk on that day, but I was told that Sarvesh Tiwari, who had recently given a talk on Subhash Chandra Bose and the Indian National Army and came up with some very controversial claims, had appeared in another video in conversation with Sahana Singh to clarify his position. Since I intended to specifically address some of his claims within this talk, I wanted to have a look at this second video as well. For me, Martyrs Day should be a remembrance of the soldiers who have physically defended our nation with the strength of their arms, not hesitating to lay down their lives in the line of duty. Whereas Gandhi, in whose name Martyrs Day is observed, would not be someone I'd mention among martyrs because to me he was more a victim of his own deeds rather than a martyr who represents this spirit of ultimate sacrifice. Now, one of the first things to understand when we talk about the principles and spirit of the military is that military men have throughout human history been instruments in the hands of the larger forces at work. Call them cannon fodder or fresh fish or ponds, countless human lives have been lost, young lives snuffed out in their prime, slaughtered, maimed, millions gone to their deaths, unnamed and unsung. For some individuals or ideals, identities or interests, but what has through time motivated these common men in various armies? What made them submit their will, surrender their fate and sacrifice their lives for the ambitions of a few, a collective idea or geographical entity and continues to is what I talk about here. My intention uh, when I was thinking about a title and trying to structure this talk was to more holistically address this issue covering some of the other connected things that have become recurring themes in social media. The main issues that form the context of my talk today are firstly, a section which has been discrediting Subhash Chandra Bose for among other things, the operative language of the Indian National Army founded by him and the other, a recent Sangam Talks video that appeared among a set of panel talks released on 2611 that featured Major General G.D. Bakshi and Major Gauravarya, moderated very admirably by Neera Jatri, which excited a flood of opinions and reactions, alleging lack of clarity of the military men on dealing with Islam. To begin with the latter, the allegations of a delusional secularism among Indian military men and a blind eye towards Muslims' motivations. We come across such views off and on on social media when people see these sarvdhan pratna sthals of the army or efforts of rapprochement taken up sometimes by the military in problem areas like Kashmir, Northeast and also these statements that military men make sometimes that in the armed forces all religions are equal at which people roll up their eyes and say oh the same secular talk. So is this true? that military men are deluded by secularism? 
is this a relevant criticism of the military and how does it play out in reality? These are best answered by another set of questions. Is the military supposed to deal with Islamic ideology? And whenever it has dealt with Islam as a force, has it failed due to this alleged shortcoming of military men? How does the individual behave within the military? And how does the military behave as a unit? Now, first thing to understand here is that the military is just an arm of the state. It is not acting out any policy or aims of its own in dealing with entities outside of itself. Because internally they too have a definite ethos, policy and code of conduct. Most important of these is that the military does not operate on ideology. This is the hallmark of a professional fighting force. A force that has been schooled on ideology will have differential levels of commitment among the men. It will be unreliable, inconsistent in performance, disjointed due to discrepancy in motivations and prone to indiscipline and infighting and not solely on account of religion. Ideological differences exist within the same religion as well. We have seen how acrimonious these fault lines within the Hindu identity can be on the issue of caste, sub-caste, communal chauvinism. We have seen Rajput, Sikh, Maratha, Jat groups squabble amongst each other in social media. And it is not that lobbies don't take advantage of these. And take for example tomorrow if Rajputs refuse to serve under a Maratha officer or Sikhs refuse to serve under a Tamilian officer or Shias under a Sunni. Had we been a 100% Hindu country, even then implementing this Hindu army idea would not be possible due to infinite such diversity within the Hindu identity itself. Hindu armies did fight against each other in the past, sometimes collaborating with Muslims for one-upmanship against each other. There were Hindu regional armies, clan armies constantly fighting amongst themselves. So ideology as identity or identity as ideology is a descent down the slope because these ideas can be broken down into smaller and smaller interest groups. It's like introducing the devil within of disintegration. The very talk about any identity distinction, be it caste or religion or regional in the military setting is equal to creating a fault line. Recently I saw a video clip on internet. This never used to happen earlier. It showed a unit of the elite forces marching to this song, Tum Bharat Ke Veer Ho Jati Bhed Bhav Ko Ja, something along these lines. Now this kind of activism is exactly what is not required for the military. It is like poison. Why would you talk about Jati when it is not even a factor? The bottom line is that Personal identities are meant to be dissolved in the military and another overarching unifying identity reinforced so that the personal motivations of the men do not interfere with their actions. It wouldn't be inaccurate perhaps to say that uh, the military is meant to be a programmed animal with a predictable behavior. Secondly, such views give no thought to the vital question how one would implement this proposed 
Hindu identity based military. How far can one go? Is it even possible? Is it uh, practicable as state policy to legitimize suspicion against a group of people and exclude them from service? And then who all will you exclude? Is it possible to predict desertion? Which identities are thrown? Have Hindus not deserted? The biggest desertion in the history of Indian Army since independence has been by Sikhs. So shall we exclude Sikhs now from the military? We had recently heard a lot of these retired officers of a particular persuasion coming out in open support of the subversive farmers agitation. So now will we start picking army men on the basis of their political allegiances? These two sometimes come in play in appointments at senior influential posts, but this is not the basic ingredient of the military. Moreover, outlooks and attitudes are constantly changing. Interest groups keep realigning themselves. The military cannot stand on such shifty ground. It is important to understand that any ideology, Islamism, Dalitism, Hindutva, Communism, Identity Chauvinism, Socialism. A couple of years back, there was a whole lot of bilge against the Sahayak system. By the way, this nonsense emanated from the Hindutva camp and which is foolish considering the military is a strictly hierarchical system, which is crucial for enforcing discipline. All these notional boxes are harmful for the integrity of the armed forces. And mentioning all these ideologies together does not mean that I am equating them. I have my own personal thought and rationale on which of these is valid for me. What I am saying is that these simply do not come in play in the military. The question is irrelevant to them. Then these Sarvdhan Pratnasthals in army units, they serve a definite purpose of providing for all personnel a place to seek solace in their personal spiritual belief in times of difficulty, hard times like marching into a grim battle where that's just lurking around the corner. Now obviously a Muslim soldier won't go to a mandir to pray, but that doesn't mean that by going to his prayer area he is pursuing Islamic talim. All religion prayer areas are not meant to serve a religious purpose and neither for making any political statement. Rather, these are to reinforce the principle of equal treatment to all, which is actually the case. In the military, there is no appeasement, no favor, no reservations. The strength of the military lies in making it fight on a uniform set of ideals rather than on uniform ideology. And the latter is in fact unachievable since it is impossible to completely empty the human mind of personal motivations. It is imbecilic to talk about basing the armed forces on unified Hindu identity when no such unified identity exists at the political level. And this is the reason we have identity based politics, exploiting group sentiments. Parties across the board do so, right, left and centre, all of them. BJP is also guilty of it. Their last political campaign in Bengal played two identities. Brahmin versus subaltern, Rajbanshi versus Bengali, creating fault lines which had been absent until then. And politicians will continue doing this. Therefore, 
trying to forge unity in military based on a Hindu identity will invariably fail because the roots of the military men are in their society. We have an example before us of Pakistan, a state created on a single supposedly unifying idea of Islam. But where are they today? They are fractured along Sindhi, Baloch, Pathan, Punjabi, Muhajir identities. So the glue of the military consists of different elements. The ideals that inspire the highest level of commitment among military men are usually very straightforward, simple, universal and clearly defined. Courage, honor, manliness, fidelity, the oath of allegiance uh, that military men take uh, becomes a significant part of their character and personal integrity. We will come on this later. Then service, sacrifice, valor, comradeship and most importantly discipline and obedience. These values are inculcated through years of training and conditioning, the structural basis for which is the regiment and its long-standing tradition. We will look into this too in a little more detail when we go into the desertions in uh, British Indian Army. A definite set of regular practices, behavioral uh, constraints and moral code of conduct common to the entire military is laid down and rigorously enforced from the inception. But you may notice that patriotism is not a term that figures in these. One may say it is often alleged this is because we inherited the present structure of the armed forces from the British. But we have learned from experience that this is the most effective and successful template for the military. The reason for this is that patriotism can be defined in many ways. It can be and often gets restricted to more limited, narrower identities, which is what happened with Hindu armies in the past. It is not that they were not patriotic, but there was discrepancy in what they saw as patriotism. And this is also because army is not about emotionalism, but professionalism. Emotionalism doesn't work in the army, otherwise a whole lot of military decisions uh, will go wrong. Patriotism of army men is not declared as an absolute ideal, but implied. It is expressed in unflinching commitment and awareness that they are the last line of defense and a do or die attitude no matter what. It is somewhat like a marriage, if I may use that parlance, more about commitment than romance. One important note on identity and cohesion. Although we follow the structure and system of military created by the British, there is an important difference. The British fostered factional identities and identity based uh, regiment composition in order to enable them to use the native army for their advantage. And these were often fallacious, for example, the martial versus non martial classes, the deliberately created chauvinistic notions based on ident identity, like in case of Sikhs. These things have undergone successful alteration in Indian Army. Many strictly ethnically rooted regiments have been replaced uh, by general regiments. Some ethnicity based regiments have been continued for their historical record and for preserving uh, regimental tradition, 
but retaining only a definite proportion of men from the main group and introducing men from the general category. In officers ranks, reservation has been done away with completely and are evenly represented now. So changes keep happening based on experiences with passage of time. Now in that thread there was also talk of dharmic army, introducing dharmic values among uh, soldiers. But similarly as patriotism, dharma may be defined in an infinite number of ways, some of them even running counter to each other. Humans also do not have the same level or capacity or even inclination to grasp these concepts. So any force that is oriented on such loose flighty ideas will be incapable of acting with uniformity of purpose and will cave in at the first sign of adversity. Pakistan army tries to exploit religion and the sentiment of jihad, but this is precisely the reason they are not a very successful army, though constituted of the same racial and cultural elements and admittedly, and this is something that my dad used to say, make no mistake, Pakistanis are equally good soldiers. Thing is, the raison d'etre of the Pakistani state and the basis of Pakistani identity makes their military susceptible to these failures. And this is what that uh, Sangam talk was about, which I am referring to here. It was a set of five brilliantly conceived panels and uh, topics for 2611. I would urge you all to watch them. And the links of all these videos that I mentioned in the course of this session will be given in the description box at the release of this talk. Now, these exercises that uh, the army holds, uh, which this video talks about of engaging with leaders of the Muslim community is not because they are looking to appease them, but because this is what is set out as state policy. So this sort of chatter against the army is actually a case of bucking up the wrong tree. There is need to put onus where it is due. Hindu nationhood, Hindu primacy in defining civilizational values and determining policy have to be deliberated and implemented at the level of the state. The army simply obeys, which brings me to the next point. The Earth Shastra lays down obedience as the primary virtue of an army. It mentions various kinds of armies that are at the disposal of a king. A standing army, hired army, irregulars, conscripts, then provincial armies, citizens armies, militias, etc. They are uh, distinguished as either Bhritta, that is the professional salaried army and Mitra, armies and armed groups aligned along uh, common interest. But it clearly says that a regular army made of obedient, strong and seasoned personnel is the most superior kind of army. Obedience is a paramount quality of the military as well as strict adherence to a hierarchy. We have often heard this line repeated by military men, we just obey orders. Military men are trained for unfailing compliance to a chain of command, subordinating their personal opinions and preventing them from coming in play, unless authorized to exercise discretion by their designation or a mandate. Not Enforcing this ideal can result in complete disintegration of the army. This deference to rank is followed even after retirement and discipline is strictly enforced. 
you will recollect recently some of the retired officers got into political sparring on Twitter and subsequently they had to withdraw their tweets. Some even deleted their accounts. Clearly, they had received a rap from the military authorities and asked to do so. This is the reason military men have always borne political blunders, diplomatic bloops, bureaucratic inefficiency, apathy of the political class, insensitivity of the society, even injustice to themselves without reaction. In the military, instances of indiscipline and infractions are very strictly dealt with. There are swift and serious consequences for the smallest violation of military code. Sedition ka charge to nahi lag jata. It is impossible to escape penalty, unlike normal legal procedure where even rioters and murderers get away. Kiji prove nahi hua kuch. It won't be an exaggeration to say that military men are pretty much programmed to obey orders. The modern military has been designed to act as a machinery with calculable outcomes. And believe me, there's no other way you would want the military to be. And the crux, has the military ever failed in dealing with Islamists or Islamic powers on account of these principles at its foundation? Take the case of Major Mohit Sharma who had infiltrated a Hezbollah outfit and killed two dreaded terrorist commanders. Would such an operation have been possible without thorough study of the psychology and motivation of the militants? So military does carry out studies, especially at the level of commanding officers. There are formal trainings on the factors that affect the morale of the men, loyalty and discipline, authority and obedience the cohesion of military units and the aspect of desertion as well, both historical and potential. They periodically review the morale of the ranks and are also required to study the psyche of the populace they interact with. In training, the officers study psychology, subordination and the basis of discretion, various military histories, strategy, they are constantly being sent off to some or the other course. These are study courses uh, throughout the service career. Then a thorough orientation on the socio-religious background of the regimental unit they will command. Their characteristics, sensibilities and sensitivities, regiment history. Ideology is also studied especially when dealing with ideologically motivated adversaries, but the military itself is not oriented along these lines. You will never hear such things from them like prejudice and ideology are useless for them. But this doesn't mean that they are oblivious to how Islam motivates, for example, the Pakistani army and the terrorists. All the same, when an army officer says that he is confident that a Muslim Indian army soldier will cover his back just as well as a Hindu soldier. He is not mouthing mere homilies because unlike politicians, he knows he will have to put his life on his word. So how it works is that military men are not invested in any set of ideas like socialism or secularism because they are not into posturing. Their focus is on what works and what not for the military to function as an efficient unit. 
So, equality for all works and it will be enforced. In the end, my question to all these commentators would be, why would you want to mess in a system which is working so well? And it has never worked this well in entire pre-modern history. Talking of history, let us go to the origin of this term, Hinduization of the army. Hinduization of the army did figure frequently in the concerns of Hindu leaders during the independence struggle. And not just Savarkar, there was uh, B.S. Munje, Balakrishna Shivaram Munje, also a Hindu Mahasabha leader and Savarkar's predecessor. He founded the Central Hindu Military Education Society for this purpose by creating a strength of able-bodied youth in this organization for feeding into the army. The concern appears in Ambedkar's writings also and it is discussed quite extensively in letters exchanged between Savarkar and Rashbihari Bose. But this Hinduization was not about inserting Hindutva ideology among the ranks. This talk was about increasing the proportion of Hindus in the British Indian Army because owing to the recruitment pattern post the 1857 War of Independence, the proportion of Muslim soldiers was almost 70%, the greater majority of them being Muslim Punjabis. Muslims from United Province, uh, present-day Uttar Pradesh were also not preferred for the same reason. They were thought to be more prone to rebellion. And the worry of Hindu leaders was not so much the aspect of loyalty, but that in the event of eventual partition, Pakistan would have an army far bigger uh, than India. Demands had been raised for some time for providing military training to youths in schools and colleges in the provinces. And the measures were quite successful. The Muslim proportion in army went down significantly uh, within 10 years in 1945 to about 34%. This was similar to the term Indianization of the British Indian Army, which was meant to have more Indians in commanding positions in the army. This was set in motion in the beginning of the 20th century by the British government, due to which the number of Indian officers coming out of the Indian Military Academy also went up over the same period. Coming to the moot now, in his second talk, where Sarvesh Tiwari attempts to account for his claims, he is trying to backtrack and soft pedal, saying, I didn't say anything against Poos and I just talked about the jihadis in INA. Actually, it wouldn't matter if he criticized any character, but he makes some pretty outrageous claims for which he gives scant or no evidence. Apart from these latest videos, he has put out an elaborate screed against Subhash Pose in a set of five articles. He has been constantly tweeting these defamatory claims. And it is not that he has not been countered with correct facts, but he chooses to ignore these. And that's why this air of honest reassessment of history that he assumes is disingenuous. I'll show you a few samples where he makes these blatantly false assertions. In one tweet, he says, Sardar Patel threatened to sue Subhash and Sharad Pose for fraud in forging a will of his brother, allegedly bequeathing his wealth to the left-wing causes of Bose brothers. Bose brothers settled with Sardar Patel out of court. Then he says, 
Subhash Bose and brother produced a will in which Vithal Bhai bequeathed property to leftists. Sardar Patel sued Bose for 420. This is the language he is using for Subhash Chandra Bose. They settled. And at another place he says, few know Sardar Patel had sued Bose brothers, Subhash and Sharat, in a property case and won. Sardar's Agraj, Vithal Bhai, was a trade unionist. Wonder where he gets that from because it is not true. Who died in Europe in company of Subhash. In a shoddy will, all his property, he goes on on these lines. And this tweet is from 2030. So he has been on this trip to run down the character of Subhash Post for quite some time now. And high time it's called out. Now the facts of the case. First of all, neither was there a forgery or fraud, nor had Vallabhai threatened a suit and nor was it settled out of court. After this will of Vithalbhai came to light, Vallabhai started cavilling about it. Why was it signed only by Bengalis and not some Gujaratis who were also with him? Where was the original? Why is the doctor's sign missing? Though this was not strictly required since it was not a deathbed will. The will was almost uh, three weeks before Vithalbhai's death. After this inquisition and innuendos from Vallabhai had gone on for some time in letters, it was Subhash Bose who in September 1934 submitted the original will to Bombay High Court and filed what's called a probate petition. That's the legal process by which the validity of a will is determined. And please note this point. The petition was granted. What does that mean? The will was established as genuine in a court of law. And Vallabhai was directed to send the proceeds to Subhash Bose, which incidentally was specified as three-fourth and not all of the property as Tiwari is claiming. Now Patel started acting up. He refused to comply, saying that there had to be an agreement on the interpretation of the will. So he did not challenge the genuineness of the will. He was contending on its language. And why? Jealousy. Subhash Bose had by now risen tremendously in fame, so much so that even Gandhi was compelled to propose his name for Congress President at the Haripura session in February 1938. This was bitterly proposed by Vallabhai at that time and in 1939 when Bose sought re-election, again Vallabhai opposed him and threatened to use his clout with the Congress Working Committee to neutralize him. Patel was all through the cunning politician and had this hostility towards, uh, towards Subhash Chandra Bose. Now, was Vithalbhai's will altogether out of the way? Not really. Before him, there was Chitranjan Das, who also willed his entire property for the nation, in spite of having a family. They were both fierce Swarajists. This term I'll explain later, but basically they were uncompromising nationalists devoted to the nation. Vallabhai, in contrast, was a devout Gandhian and that the reason for estrangement between the two brothers. At the Tripuri session later that year, when Bose trumped Gandhi's candidate, Pattabhi Sitaramaya, to the post of Congress President in April 1939, it was Patel who manipulated the working committee, making 12 of the 15 members resign and forced Bose's ouster. But he was not satisfied with this. 
To assail Bose further, he approached the court, this time to have the will of his deceased brother invalidated through Govardhan Das Patel, one of the Gujaratis who was with Vithal Bhai in his last days. This was in September 1939, full five years after the will had been attested as genuine. It was at this time that uh, Sharad Bose came to represent his brother. And this plea by Patel was again not on the will's genuineness but entirely a technicality. The appeal was filed under sections 138 and 139 which are the Indian Succession Acts and not 420 as Tiwari's claims. It was contested by Sharad Bose under section 2 which is the Charitable Endowments Act. To cut a long story short, the will was disallowed due to unclear language as to the will's purpose. In this situation, the only entity the court could hand over the property to was the family. So Patel didn't exactly win the case. He used legal artifice to claim the property and disregarded his brother's time wish. The judgment is there on India Kanun for those of you who wish to look it up. So the only fraud here is Tiwari's tweets. Let us take a look at another tweet by Sarvesh Tiwari. He says here, Subhash Bose did not establish INA. It was established by General Mohan Singh and Rash Bihari Bose. He only took over. He also did not establish Azad Hind earlier. It was established by Muhammad Iqbal Shedai. He took over from Shedai his force or duplicated. He did establish forward block though. This last line is the red herring. He constantly insinuates communist leanings against Bose. Sarvesh Tiwari really has this talent of packing in a bunch of lies in a 300 character tweet. But to begin, in one of his articles targeting Subhash Bose, Tiwari is very peeved that Hindu Mahasabha is named before Muslim League mentioned together as communal parties by Bose, according to him every time. First of all, this is wrong because there are, there are several places where Bose has mentioned Muslim League uh, before Mahasabha and the Akalis, which is also mentioned among communal parties. And often he mentions only Muslim Leagues, which is most times. But notice in this tweet, Tiwari mentions the name of Rashpehari Bose, who conceived a nationalist army and worked towards its realization right from the military rise of Japan in 1937 after the name of Captain Mohan Singh, who as a POW in Malaya was converted to the IDL later in 1942 by the persuasion of a Japanese intelligence officer, Major Fujiwara Ibachi. He was made a general by Rashpehari Bose. Let's look at the facts to nail this bluff. When war between Great Britain and Japan seemed imminent, Rashpehari Bose, through his long-term associate and protector, Mitsuru Toyama, the Japanese pan-Asianist leader, initiated contact with the General Staff Headquarters of Japan and held discussions with its Military Affairs Bureau to concretize plans of a military mobilization of Indians against British stranglehold with Japanese assistance. Within the scope of what was known as Japan's Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, a grand plan of pan-Asian brotherhood. Indians were not initially included in this scheme, 
but Raj Behari's engagement uh, with the Japanese seems to have borne fruit. And soon after this, intelligence units were formed for South Asian operations. And in October, Fujiwara Iwaichi's unit, known as Fujiwara Kikan, was tasked with organizing an Indian Independence Army. And on February 17, 1942, at Farah Park, Singapore, in his first address to the Indian POWs gathered there, Fujiwara formally announced that the Indian soldiers were not being considered POWs, but friends, and specifically referred to them as the Peoples of East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Now, building of an organized armed resistance had been in discussion for long, since World War I, in fact, in meetings of the Indian Independence League, an association of Southeast Asian Indian communities. It was attended by revolutionary groups like Anushilan and Gadar. It is talked about in exchanges with revolutionaries in India, notably uh, Sachindranath Sanyal and Vidi Savarkar. In December 1941, Rajpehari Bose convened a huge meeting in Tokyo to bring together the Japanese Indian community on this issue, as also the revolutionaries. It was attended by Satyanand Puri, pre-monastic Prafulla Singh of Anushilan and Sardar Pritham Singh of Gadar. So, all this was going on. Subhash Bose had been in touch with Rajpehari Bose all through as also directly with the Japanese representatives since 1937-38. Rajpehari had been directly asking Subhash Bose to come to Japan to take over the movement and also communicate it through other revolutionaries like Jatindra Lochan Mitra, Vidhi Savarkar and Harikuma Chakravarti to send Subhash Bose to Japan for this purpose. Before Mohan Singh of 14th Punjab landed as a POW in Japanese hands around mid-December 1941 after the Battle of Jitra during the Malayan campaign, Pritam Singh, who had been a close associate of Rajpehari since early 1920s, was already in Malaya working with Major Fujiwara. Fujiwara then started working on Mohan Singh, trying to impress on him the worthiness of the cause and the feasibility of building an independence army to fight alongside the Japanese against the British because they wanted someone with military experience to mobilize the soldiers. And this took time. Mohan Singh was initially reluctant, which again is typical of a military man. It is not easy to just break the oath of allegiance without considering the moral dimension. Eventually, he did. He was convinced, especially after speaking to Pritam Singh. His real work began in February 1942, after Singapore fell to the Japanese, along with a significant number of Indian POWs, around 42,000 in number, who were handed over to him by Major Fujiwara in that uh, gathering held at Farah Park, Singapore. Thereafter, his activities consisted of trying to motivate the officers and men for the cause, persuading them to join the independence army. But there was still no structure or organization of an army. There were not even drills for the men who enlisted. In fact, they were put to work on the construction of Tenga airfield and railroads at various other places. Groups of POWs were sent to work in Kuala Lumpur, Siramban and camps in Thailand. 
Indian National Army uh, came into existence in September 1942 under the auspices of the Indian Independence League headed by Rajpehari Bose. It was at this time that Mohan Singh was elevated in rank and appointed General Officer Commanding of Indian National Army. So, fact of the matter is he did not form an army. Another point here. In his article, Tiwari claims Bose would later name a regiment in INA as Azad Regiment in honor not of Chandrasekhar Azad, lest one thought so, but of the Maulana Azad, no Ashfaq nor Azimullah. He means the revolutionary and the 1857 freedom fighter. Now, this is amusing. On one hand, he touts revolutionaries as the true patriots and thinks that divisions of INA should have been named after them. But Vallabhai Patel, who publicly denounced the revolutionaries as a bunch of hotheads messing with things they have no business in. He even colluded with Gandhi and Nehru to suppress the naval mutiny. He suddenly becomes very credible for Sarvesh Tiwari in case of the little by will because it is more important to spite Subhash Bose. There is another thing. How can Sarvesh Tiwari predict which side Ashwakullah or Azimullah would have swung had they been present in the years before partition? Maybe they would have chosen Pakistan. Ashwakullah used to assiduously read the Quran in jail. If the case is against Islamism, any Muslim can turn out to be a jihadi tomorrow. Maulana Shaukat Ali of the Khilafat fame was associated with uh, revolutionaries. He used to supply arms to Anushilan. Let me read out a quote. People talk sometimes of the need of the Muslims joining hands with the Hindus because some incidents in contemporary history have not been exactly to their liking. Soft-headed and some self-advertising folk have gone about proclaiming that Muslims should join the Congress because the government had revoked the partition of Bengal, because Persia and Turkey are in trouble. We are simply amused at this irresponsible fatuity. But when a responsible body like the London branch of the All India Muslim League talks of closer cooperation between the Hindus and Muslims because the Muslims of Tripoli and Persia have been the victims of European aggressions, we realize for the first time that even sane and level-headed men can run off at a tangent and confuse the issues. What has the Muslim situation abroad to do with the conditions of the Indian Muslims? Have the questions that really divide the two communities lost their force and meaning? If not, then the problem remains exactly where it was at any time in recent Indian history. Board of arbitration, peace syndicates and solemn pacts about cows cannot solve it any more than we can by a spell of occult words control the winds and the tides. The communal sentiment and temper must change and interests must grow identical before the Hindus and Muslims can be welded into a united nationality. Sounds like a very level-headed, broad-minded, nationalist Indian leader, isn't it? These words come from Mulana Muhammad Ali Johar, leader of the Khilafat movement, written some years before he took up kajals for the caliphate in India. This is what happens when courts are taken in isolation. Anyways, back to facts. During March to April 1942, Indian Independence League conferences were held to bring all representative organizations of Indians in South Asia under one banner. 
during which the formal motion was passed to raise an army under it for Indian independence. These conferences were called the Azad Bharat Sabhas. So the word Azad was in circulation at that time. Azad Brigade was formed when the first Indian National Army took shape in September 1942. It was named Number One Hind Field Force. So the word Hind for this independence, Indian Independence Army was also there. It was organized into three brigades, Gandhi Brigade, Nehru Brigade and Azad Brigade. So the name Azad Brigade existed at least 10 months before Subhash Bose even took over the command of INA in July 1943. Also, Hindustani was drilled in along with the written English communication at this stage. But why were the brigades named after Congress leaders? For this, we have to look at another set of events which came to be known as the Bidadiri Resolutions. Now, after abandoning their pledge to the British Indian Army, the Indian soldiers who were asked to enlist for INA wanted the assurance that they were indeed going to fight for India and not becoming pawns in turn of the Japanese. There was significant uh, apprehension and suspicion uh, against the Japanese. Also, while the British at this time had launched an intense propaganda among the Indian public, against the action Axis nations. The excesses uh, committed by the Japanese on the Chinese were reported in gory details and greatly exaggerated. Within British Indian Army, intense propaganda and indoctrination was carried out, defaming the Indian POWs, portrayed as renegades who had betrayed their motherland. They were dubbed JIFs, short for Japanese-inspired fifth columnists and portrayed as unprincipled roots. The effects of this propaganda we will have a look at later. Indian leaders got foolishly taken in by it and started issuing denunciatory statements against the Japanese and the Axis powers, pledging support to the anti-fascist allies, which started playing on the minds of captured Indian soldiers. And Raj Bihari Bose had come down strongly on Indian leaders for this stupidity. We find Subhash Bose's broadcasts from Germany regularly advising listeners to avoid making the fatal mistake of believing in the Allied propaganda offensive in India or even uh, the one disseminated by the Indian National Congress, which he warned were just voices coming through the channels of British propaganda. Anand Mohan Sahib, who was, the, was with Indian Independence League that time, he wrote, on the mischievous propaganda now being carried on in India to misrepresent Japan there. And he criticized the naivete of Indian leaders that while some in India were advocating a boycott of Japanese goods, this only gave comfort to Britain. Indians should recognize that it was Englishmen who were instigating Chinese hostility to Japan. He had also uh, written to Nehru and urged Congress leaders to maintain neutrality in the Sino-Japanese conflict. Mohan Singh at this time went about his errand, getting the Indian POWs to join, not giving fiery speeches on patriotism to the soldiers. He was holding talks with the Indian officers, trying to coax them. If they joined, the soldiers would join automatically. And it is important to know what was going on in their minds. 
which becomes clear when you read their personal accounts. They wanted to have clarity on who and what they would be fighting for. By learning it. For learning it. अगर इंडिया के लिए लड़ रहे हैं तो ये लीग वाले कौन हैं सेकंड ऑर्डर किससे लेने ये मलायन और सिंगापुरियन इंडियन बैठे हैं ये बताएंगे या जापानियों से तो इंडियन इंडिपेंडेंस का क्या हाउ वुड दे नो दैट दे वर नॉट बीइंग मैनिपुलेटेड बाय ग्रुप्स विद इंटरेस्ट अब्रॉड सो टू थिंग्स ऑफ अटमोस्ट इंपॉर्टेंस टू मिलिट्री मैन एलिजेंस एंड दी चेन ऑफ कमांड We will revisit this scene at the POW camp when we look at the INA trials. So the officers kept quizzing Mohan Singh on the Japanese motives, and Mohan Singh all the while was trying to keep them interested. But these things were playing on his mind too. In his very first meeting with Fujiwara, Mohan Singh had inquired, "When was Subhash Bose coming?" This was the proposal that the regional Indian Independence League delegates had taken to the first conference in Tokyo in March 1942, and this was what Colonel Shanawas had said to the Japanese intelligence chief that there was only one man outside India who could start a real INA. So Subhash Bose's taking over INA was set course all through, with or without Mohan Singh. being one of the tallest leaders that time seen as equal to gandhi having him as commander of the independence army was a clear signal that they were going to fight for their country but meanwhile so that he could start off mohan singh convened a meeting of the officers in april 1942 in vidadari the biggest pow camp in singapore whereby they framed a set of resolutions on the broad principles of the independence army and an agreement that the in army would go into action only when the congress and the people of india asked it to this was obviously added just to quieten the soldiers angst because there's no way congress or the people of india could send them directions but this was basically the reason the brigades were named after congress leaders to reiterate that they would be fighting only for india and not along javanese aims after this on may 9th 1942 recruitment for ina started eventually uh, when organization of the independence army began even their armbands were embroidered with the congress flag along with the letters ina until the burma campaign which went on till february 1944 ina used the swaraj flag of the international congress in june 1942 at bangkok the resolution was formally adopted to invite subhash chandra bose to take over the league as president and the command of the international army and all embracing indian independence league was constituted with a council of action on top and under it a committee of representatives of indians in south asia and the indian national army subordinate to this body and therefore in control of the civilian structure this seems to have been disagreeable to mohan singh though he was made a member of the council of action mohan singh was impatient inexperienced and did not have the personality and maturity to deal with the japanese Indian Independence League wanted to wait till a firm commitment could be elicited from the Japanese on some vital issues the official status of INA 
and the assurance that they would be used only in the Indian frontier. The status of Indian nation treated as equal allies instead of dependent subjects. The Japanese on the other hand were intent on building intelligence, surveillance and sabotage units for penetrating the enemy lines. But all Mohan Singh could think of was launching into a campaign at the Burma-India border, irrespective of military preparedness. He had an inflated estimation of INA and himself and had no realistic idea about the theatre of war and strategy. The trust deficit intensified when Fujiwara was sent to a different assignment and in his place under Colonel Iwakuro Hideo, a new intelligence unit was put in place. Mohan Singh started thereafter overstepping his authority, bypassing the Indian Independence League and acting on his own accord, which could have jeopardized the entire effort. So ultimately, he was dismissed and put under arrest on December 29, 1942. With this, the first Indian National Army stood dissolved and ceased to exist as a functional entity. Thereafter, in February 1943, after meeting with military officers and Indian NCOs, non-commissioned officers, Rajpehari was reconstituted INA, this time under his own control. A committee worked on reorganization and in April, a new organization named Directorate of Military Bureau of Indian Independence League was established under Lieutenant Colonel J.R. Bhosle of 5th Maratha Light Infantry as the director. In July 1943, then Subhash Chandra Bose arrived in Singapore to take over the leadership of Indian Independence League and Indian National Army. So if at all he took over from someone, it was directly from Rashbihari Bose or J.R. Bhosle, but not Mohan Singh. After this, INA was organized as number one division with four brigades, Subhash Brigade, Gandhi Brigade, Nehru Brigade and Azad Brigade. So only one brigade was added after Subhash Bose came, after his name, which he protested furiously. The other names were simply retained. Going to Tiwari's other claims, he claims that Bose cooperated or was forced to cooperate with the Islamist Muhammad Iqbal Shedai and took over his Azadin force and used his broadcasting agency. I quote from his article, Bose had to cooperate and compete with Shedai, take his help in settling up his own radio infrastructure, even staff and retained even the name of Shedai's organization Azad Hindustan with a minor abridgment as Azad Hind. These pressures would further force Bose to demonstrate himself as being a fellow traveler of the Islamists. Bose is a fellow traveler of the Islamists, a path not new to him anyways. Tiwari not only does not provide any reference for these wild claims, he appears hopelessly confused about Shedai's Battalion Azad Hindustan, raised with the help of the Italians, and the Indian Liberation Army, which Bose raised with German assistance, known as Indische Legion or Legion Freies Indians or the Legion Azad Hind. He also mixes up or deliberately obfuscates Shedai's Radio Himalaya with Bose's Azad Hind radio. Shedai had formed a government in exile known as Azadin government, which was a phantom entity for all purposes. 
The similarity of names Tiwari has used to portray both as beholden to Shaddai's aims, as having taken over Shaddai's radio establishment. Shankar Sharan also, in his vehement defense of Tiwari, repeats the same drivel, though in chaste Hindi. Now the facts. Shaddai's Azad Hind government or Radio Himalaya or his battalion Azad Hindustan had absolutely nothing to do with Bose's Azad Hind Radio and the Centrale Fries Indian or the Free India Center which he established entirely with German assistance along the lines of their mutual agreements. Within three weeks of his arrival towards end April 1941, he already had the infrastructure and the vast South Asia network which the Germans had put at his disposal along with a detailed propaganda plan including target nations, the stations and frequencies of broadcast, worked out directly with Rühler, the head of Rundfunksteller, which is the German radio, directions for which came straight from Joachim von Ribbentrop, the German foreign minister. Shedai's Radio Himalaya was established uh, around this time, about early 1941, but in Rome. He had no operations in Germany. So, there is no question of Bose having taken over his infrastructure or name or staff or anything. So, these are plain lies from Tiwari and company. What Bose did do was offer Shedai a position in Azadhin Radio because he hardly had anyone for the job. But it did not materialize precisely because of the obvious differences in their aims and orientation. ACN Nambiar was eventually called to take over the broadcasting ops. Radio Himalaya, it is said, was run so amateurishly, it never gained the professionalism and popularity and spread of Azadin Radio and simply faded out of relevance. In fact, uh, during Bose's visit to Rome in May 1942, Bose met the Italian Foreign Minister Cagliazzo Ciano and Mussolini himself. And during these meetings, Bose explicitly requested to set up a Free India Centre and Azad Hind Broadcasting Station in Rome, independent of Shedai's activities. Shedai was certainly a rabid British hater. His association was primarily with the Qadar Party. But his leanings and motivations and activities were entirely Islamist. And the reason he was patronized by Rome was consistent with the larger Axis strategy, Germany, Japan and Italy, all of them, to create a wave of pan-Islamism and direct it against the imperial powers, primarily represented by the British-American Allied Coalition. It was their stated policy since World War I in fact, and Italy totally overdid it, holding itself out as the protector of Islam. Mussolini, in his trip to Tripoli, declared himself the sword of Islam, al saif al-Islam. Tiwari and Shankar Sharan go on at length hyperventilating about these liaisons. But what does all this have to do with Subhash Bose? Tiwari mentions the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Al-Hajj Amin al-Husseini and the Fakir of Ipi or Waziristan. The association with Bose is made only because these two were among 600 guests invited to the Indian Independence Day celebration on January 16, 1943. So what? 
Aren't Muslim guests from diplomatic circles invited to formal gatherings? They were German state guests at that time, just like Subhash Bose himself. There's no record of Bose ever having interacted with Husseini. Did Bose himself make an agreement with a single Muslim nation or the Palestinian movement? Bose had shared stage with scores of anti-colonial and anti-communist leaders at international conferences organized by the Germans as part of building a wide uh, front against the Allies known as anti-colonial international. They were exiled leaders from Central Asia, North Caucasus, Arab states, Baltic states, Maghreb, which is North African countries, from the Falga Ural region, Chechnya, Poland, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, South Africa, Iraq, also Russian Muslim rebels, Afghans, then Irish rebel leaders. Among them were the Arabs and Palestinians too. Bose never had any direct dealing with these. All of these nations had formed their own legions of independence fighters with German help. He names Palestine among 10 other nations in his speeches only in expressing general disgust at the British ploy of tebbing up land and creating conflict. He does not express support for any particular nation. He was basically referring to the mischief in the covenant of the League of Nations and all the conflicts born out of the Treaty of Versailles. In fact, he shows remarkable perspicacity in the following words. Britain has in other parts of her empire, for instance in Ireland and Palestine, used the religious issue in order to divide the people. She has been utilizing in India for that same purpose not only this issue but other imperial weapons like the imperial princes, depressed classes, etc. The kind of supporting arguments uh, Tiwari uses, Bose wore an achkan suit in this function instead of a uniform or dhoti kurta, therefore he was appeasing Muslims. I mean, kahan se dhaga ke joda hai? Why would he be in a diplomatic function in a military uniform? His attire would be meant to show Indian identity and dhoti kurta is just not appropriate for such an occasion. Not to mention the freezing temperature in that time of the year in Berlin. Lal Bahadur Shastri nahi gaye the Videsh, Sherwani mein. Aur dhoti se agar Hindu pride dikhta to aap jaso ke liye na, Gandhi ka jhasa hi thik hai. Tiwari claims that in Bose's speech, the mention of Indian Muslims and Hindus unanimously rejecting the idea of Pakistan is addressed specifically to appease pan-Islamist leaders. That's crazy. How would Hindu-Muslim unity in India please pan-Islamists? It goes totally against their aims. Bose was fiercely opposed to pan-Islamism all through. In fact, after discovering Shaddai's motives, Bose openly attacked him repeatedly in his radio broadcasts for his pan-Islamist leanings and support to the Muslim League. Shedai and Bose were by all means rivals in getting the support of Italians and the Germans for their cause. And because of Shedai's hold in the Italian establishment and Italy's overt support uh, to the Islamists and also Subhash Bose's preference for the Germans, he could never build a cooperation with the Italians. 
and neither could Shedai get the Germans ear. Leave alone cooperate, they operated in completely different spheres. In fact, Bose snatched the prerogative from Shedai and rescued the cause of Indian independence from being hijacked by Shedai's Islamist agenda. How this happened, we'll see presently. The definite turnaround in German policy to steer clear of Islamist aims and concentrate on anti-colonial movements is recorded in the German Foreign Office Papers of November 1941. The Italians first got onto the idea of forming foreign units uh, from captured POWs when their Supreme Army Command approved the measure in November 1941. Do please keep the dates in mind as I speak. The first of these under the Military Regrouping Centre was established in May 1942 called Centro A, consisting of Arabs, Iraqis, Syrians, North Africans and Palestinians. Centro T consisting of rebel Tunisians was formed on July 2nd, 1942 and Centro I, the force raised from Indian POWs captured during the North African campaign was formed on July 15th, 1942. Thereafter, the military regrouping center was reorganized in August 1942, following which Battalion Azad Hindustan was created out of Centro I. When? October 23rd, 1942. And when was Bose's Indian Legion created? April to May 1941. And Tiwari ji says Bose took over Shedai's Azad Hindustan Battalion. Matlab bhayankar garbade inki chronology mein. Let us look at the timeline of the Indian Legion now. It began with uh, Bose's meeting with the German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop in April 1941, where he had included the point in the agenda of raising an Indian contingent with Indian POWs. In April itself, he met Cavalry Officer Walter Hargish, who had already been training an Indian commando unit comprised of Indian civilian volunteers for ops in the northwest frontier of India. What those ops were, we'll see later. In this meeting, Plans were finalized to build an infantry unit starting with Havik's unit. This was the beginning of the initial Legion. Though it would still take time to come in battle ready shape. In May 1941, the first batch of Indian soldiers captured by Germans from the Battle of Tobruk, part of the North African campaign, were inducted into uh, this unit. A steady stream of POWs kept pouring in thereafter, especially after the Battle of Ghazala that ended in June 1942. Now, in the meanwhile, in November 1941, in a meeting attended by German and Italian representatives as well as Shedai, the Italians were made to agree on the following. Forming of Indian Legion will be carried out solely by Germany and to send all Indian POWs held by them to Germany. And not only that, in this meeting it was agreed by Italy that, and I am quoting from the minutes of the German Foreign Office, it would not be useful to encourage either with propaganda or politically the Pakistan movement 
Muslim League and Jinnah. Because the program of the Pakistan movement was only an additional factor in the artificial protraction of the disunity of India by the British. They also agreed for all political and propaganda purposes, India and Afghanistan will be treated as one. And the carpet was pulled from under Shedai's feet. This is that turnaround in policy that I talked about. And it was a direct result of Subhash Bose's firm and purposeful diplomacy. He was this far-sighted about the Indian nation's actual destiny as a regional power and historical geographical sphere of influence. In this uh, first round, Bose had been absent. Next day, he got a brief uh, from the Germans about the first day's proceedings and uh, thereafter appeared in the meeting on the second day. The joint declaration of Free India by the Axis powers was discussed in the second meeting and this was when the term Azad Hind was uh, formalized. Remember, Shedai's Azad Hindustan is still nowhere in the scene. It was also agreed that the Indian troops would not be part of the war front in Libya. Why? Because Bose did not want Indians to have anything to do with the Islamists cause. So the Germans not only agreed to set up the Indian Legion for Bose, they also got the Italians to agree to Bose's terms. All Indian POWs committed solely for Indian independence. The Germans also agreed not to use the Indian Legion on any other front to serve German war aims. But poor Shedai. He had clamoured for some time to be recognised as the sole representative of Indian independence abroad. And the Italians had indulged him long enough. They were themselves reluctant to let go of all Indian POWs, so they sent most POWs but held back a few. Centro I was formed from these men in July 1942, with Shedai as their leader. Meanwhile, in January 1942, the Germans had already made the formal announcement of the formation of the Indischer Legion, since they had begun training the POWs much earlier. The singular taking over was when the Indian soldiers uh, of Centro I, which had Sikhs, Marathas, Rajputs, Punjabis, Kurkhas and Muslims, refused to recognize Shedai as their leader and to obey the orders of the Italian officers. These men were then transported belatedly to Germany to be inducted in Indische Legion. After this, barely about 250 to 300 men remained, who were then re-inducted into Battalion Azad Hindustan, when it was formed in October 1942. But alas, even these men mutinied when they were ordered to uh, proceed to the Libyan front and Shedai refused to back down because uh, the Libyan front served the Islamist uh, aim. So just about a month later, in November 1942, Shedai's battalion Azad Hindustan was Feshundan, disbanded. Now I can understand Pakistanis making pompous claims to exaggerate Shedai's stature. But what can possibly be the Virat Hindu's motive for propagating their hoax beats me. It would be perhaps pertinent to mention certain comments made during Bose's meeting, first and only with Hitler on May 26, 1942. 
Hitler outlined India's task in rather straightforward manner in a couple of points, saying Indians have to one eliminate British influence, two be wary of the Soviets, three try to come to an agreement with Japan in order to chalk out a strategy for the eastern frontier and lastly internal organization and reconstruction of India, maintaining unity at all costs, preventing the British from partitioning India and weakening it. Hitler was of course talking in the background of the cutting up of Germany after World War I, but it is apparent that the Germans were fully cognizant of British mischief. And Bose's reply to this, tell his excellency that I have been in politics all my life and I don't need advice from any side. To his German associate, as quoted by historian Johannes H. Feucht, he remarked that Hitler is the German version of the Fakir of EP, with whom it is practically impossible to discuss any matter logically even for a few minutes. He also addressed his objection on the racist ideas in Mein Kampf directly to Hitler in this meeting, not edgeways but upfront as an agenda point. He had previously criticized Hitler and German racism openly and this had been brought to Hitler's notice before the meeting. The meeting was not really successful since Hitler was not at that time ready to commit to Bose's plans of opening a military front in South Asia. He did eventually but uh, the meeting put Bose firmly on the course towards Far East. So Bose worked with a lot of people directly or indirectly. But he did not harbor illusions about any of them, neither the Fakir of Ipi, nor Al Husseini, nor Muslims, and nor would he be pressured or forced to comply or compromise his aims with any of them, not even Hitler. Tiwari tries to mask his intentions as a genuine academic exercise, but is actually entirely polemical. He employs the typical tactic of the leftists, plausible fallacy. It all appears very genuine to those who don't know the background and history of the period. But what he portrays is completely removed from the truth. It is actually malafide. The entire case that he makes against Subhash Bose, he summarizes as follows. Bose thought that without Muslim approval, neither can Swaraj be won. And what is more, nor was it worth winning without their support. The onus of Hindu-Muslim unity lied on the shoulder. What's with this English? Lay on the shoulders of the Hindus alone, and the Hindus should be willing to make unlimited and extreme sacrifices to that end. Only by adjusting to the Muslim sensibilities and removing their misgivings was it possible to achieve that unity. And therefore, appeasing Muslims should be made a core and visible part of any program, which is what he conscientiously belaboured to do, again that English, belaboured throughout his political career. In his hostility to Hindutva also, he was quite virulent, just like the other Marxist secularist. He constantly labels Bose as a Marxist secularist. This is a tall order. But let us take a look at the grounds he bases these accusations on. The broader point on how Tiwari's views are completely erroneous, Chandrachur Ghosh and Anurthar have already made. 
I will take it down on the finer points. How this fellow builds his fakery on a labyrinth of such lies, certain examples of which I just showed you. Now, his series on Subhash Bose begins with the title, The Seeds of Islam Islamophile Secularism. And he begins by selectively implicating personalities associated with Bose. First on target, Chitranjan Das, Bose's mentor for his uh, initial four years in Congress. And the charges? Charge number one, Khilafat. The very first point marks Tiwari's intention. Bose is not even present in India at the time these monumentally foolish blunders are being effected by the Congress, pushed by Gandhi, who had by this time started to act as a dictator, manipulating every Congress decision. The Congress Khilafat Alliance came about in June 1920 and Bose appears on the scene uh, one year later, a fresh 24-year-old in July 1921. And just a month after his arrival, the horrific fallout of Congress's Khilafat Dalians has fallen on the hapless Hindus of Malabar. Tiwari seems very keen to show complicity of Chitranjan Das in Gandhi's Khilafat cause. Why? Transmitted guilt. Subhash Bose is held accountable not for what he has done, but since he would subsequently be put under Chitranjan Das's tutelage, Therefore, somehow Bose is guilty of the mindset behind Khilafat politics. But what exactly does he say Chitranjan Das is guilty of? He says Chitranjan Das exclusively carried out an over-enthusiastic campaign for the holy cause of Khilafat. Now, the fact of the matter is that after the very first Congress Khilafat meet in Amritsar, when the Congress decided to lend the full support of its power prestige and organization to the Khilafat uh, cause, a deputation was sent conveying the address of this conference to the Viceroy on January 19, 1920, which was represented by all these people who Sarvesh Tiwari has merrily exonerated, to the exception of Chitranjan Das, Pandit Madan Mohan Malviya, Bipin Chandrapal, Lala Lajpat Rai, Vallabhai Patel and more Swami Shraddhanand. Motilal Nehru and many other Congress leaders and it carried all their signatures. This was much before the terms of the Khilafat non-cooperation were decided in March 1921. Chitranjan Das is in no way involved until this time. From 1917 to 1921, he was dedicated entirely to the Bengal Provincial Congress and immediately after being elected president in 1920, he landed in jail. Tiwari says that these leaders who went along with Gandhi's Khilafat were actually against him. That's true enough. Quite a few leaders, including Jawaharlal Nehru, had uh, strong reservations about this whole deal. Tiwari gives a roundabout explanation of why Lala Lajpat Rai got talked into it. Lala Lajpat Rai finally acquiesced on the logic that if Britain came into possession, or control of larger Muslim domains, it would only mean more Muslim influence on British policies, more Muslim recruitment in armed forces and undue pressure on India and Hindus. Now I don't know how that explains it, but he gives the impression that Chitranjan Das was all through gungo about it. Now here's a quote from Chitranjan Das in a letter to Lala Lajpat Rai. 
I'm not afraid of seven crores of Muslims here in Hindustan. But I think the seven crores of Hindustan plus the armed hosts of Afghanistan, Central Asia, Arabia, Mesopotamia and Turkey will be irresistible. Here's a clear statement from Das expressing skepticism about uh, the Khilafat and its pan-Islamist dimension. He was in fact a forceful opponent of pan-Islamism. So what was happening is this, all these leaders were exchanging notes among themselves, expressing their misgivings. But fact is, in the Khilafat non-cooperation, they all went along. They were all visionary men, but they had their blind moments and that that point they all got bulldozed by Gandhi. Some of the quotes uh, Tiwari uses of Vipin Chandrapal, Sharat Chandra Chattopadhyay and Lala Lajpat Rai on the Hindu-Muslim issue trying to offset Chitranjan Das's actions were said in different contexts, not on the Khilafat uh, question. R.C. Majumdar describes three types of persuasions of the congressmen at this time. Those blindly devoted to Gandhi. Patel types who thought Gandhi could do no wrong, others who passively gave in and yet others who voiced concerns but thought something good might actually come out of it. In the meeting in March 1920, finalizing the scheme and stages of the Khilafat non-cooperation movement were Gandhi, Ajmal Khan, Maulana Azad, Shaukat Ali and Lala Rajpatrai. Gandhi's ideas were adopted by the Khilafat Conference which met at Madras on April 17, 1920. In June, another set of meetings was held with the Khilafat Committee, attended by Gandhi, Motilal Nehru, Lala Lajpat Rai, Tej Bahadur Sapru, Bipin Chandrapal, Madan Mohan Malviya, Satyamurti, Raja Gopalachari, Jawaharlal Nehru, Chintamani, No Chitranjandas. All the same, Many of these congressmen kept expressing uh, discomfort, but in the end it was Tilak who gave his stamp of approval to the Congress resolution on the Khilafat program. Majumdar says the following about this whole case. The attitude of Tilak towards the non-cooperation movement initiated by Gandhi deserves more than a passing notice as it is held by many that but for Tilak's death shortly before the Calcutta session of the Congress in 1920, Gandhi would not have been able to carry his resolution on non-cooperation. Tilak did not attend these uh, Hindu-Muslim joint meetings, but in the end seems to have assented to the resolutions. And Majumdar clarifies, that Tilak's concurrence refers to the Khilafat program and not to the general Congress proposal of non-cooperation. It becomes clearer from the following quotes. To Shaukat Ali, Tilak says, about Hindus and Muslims, I will sign anything that Gandhi suggests because I have full faith on him in the question. He says to Mukhtar Ahmad Ansari, the Muslims could always count on his support in the course of the mild campaign which they were going to start under the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi. And Tilak's words conveyed by Dr. Chotiram, he had no objection to his advising Hindus to join the movement, provided Mohammedans are sincerely bent upon non-cooperation with government. Anyone who reads these quotes would uh, think that Tilak was all for the 
Khilafat non-cooperation movement. But actually he wasn't. He somehow seems to have resigned to it. So here's the actual truth. Hindu leaders at this point did get carried away with Gandhi's lobbying and learnt a bitter lesson, yet another one for Hindus. Only a few leaders volubly opposed Gandhi at this time, Sir Shankaran Nair, Dr. D. R. Ambedkar, Annie Besant and Bipin Chandrapal, who later refused to participate in the non-cooperation movement in general and on account of its hyphenation with the Khilafat issue in particular. But somehow, Sarvesh Tiwari stretches this to put the entire onus of collaboration with the Khilafat on Chitranjan Das. Also remember, Das has barely just joined the Congress at this time. And Tiwari implies that his view has weighed in on all these Congress stalwarts of decades. And the best part, not only was Chitranjan Das not involved in any of this process, he actually opposed the Khilafat non-cooperation proposals of Gandhi in the Calcutta session uh, in September 1920. But yes, once it was approved by the Congress, Das appears to have thrown himself into it with sincerity. But his involvement was more on ground and limited to Bengal, mobilizing people locally, building up the tremendous strength of volunteers for the movement, organizing hartals, boycotts, etc. But this had nothing to do with an enthusiasm for Khilafat. That was entirely Gandhi's baby. Charge number two. Sarvesh Tiwari says that Deshpandu Das and Post brothers practically elbowed out this visionary Hindu and hardliner. He means Bipin Chandrapal. This is an extremely funny claim, considering Das's total stint in the Congress was less than six years, from 1917 to 1922. And in this was also the time that he spent in jail. Chitranjan Das had in fact a very close association with the Lal Balpal trio. His writings were published in Bande Mataram, that is Bipin Chandrapal's publication edited by Aurobindo Ghosh. They maintained contact all through. Uh, in his own journal, uh, Narayan Das used to publish writings of Sharat Chandra Chattopadhyay Bipin Chandrapal and uh, Hari Prasad Shastri. Then Bipin Chandrapal left Congress in 1925-26 and Chitranjan Das has already departed from this world by then. Moreover, Das detached from the main Congress in December 1922 itself to form his uh, Swaraj party. Sharad Chandra Bose is also a member of the Swaraj party 1924 onwards and Subhash Bose was from the very beginning chanted to Bengal Congress. So how would they elbow out Bipin Chandrapal? Tiwari also says that Bipin Chandrapal seems to have been almost deleted from Bengali memory. This charges against the Bengali community. Don't know where he gets that idea from, but Bengalis would gawk at this statement. From Bipin Chandrapal Road, Bipin Chandrapal Saranis at several places, Bipin Chandrapal Lodge, Hall, Landmarks named after Pal are strewn all over Bengal. In Delhi's Chitranjan Park, half the landmarks are named after him. Bipin Chandrapal Mark, Bipin Chandrapal Clinic, Memorial Trust, Auditorium, Park, Library, several such named after Bipin Chandrapal. Every year they hold functions to mark his birth anniversary, as also Chitranjan Das and other freedom fighters. 
I think there would be hardly any youth in Bengal who hasn't read Pal's autobiography, Shottar Bachur. Then his Soul of India, another book which is widely read in Bengal. Incidentally, from classes 8 to 10th, Bipin Chandrapal's thoughts and philosophy are taught in detail and students are required to write essays on this. It is part of the state board syllabus. Central government had a portrait of Bipin Chandrapal in the central hall after almost 60 years of independence. So, aisa hai Bipin Chandrapal ko aap log bhool Bengali nahi bhool But why is Tiwari shoving the guilt of Gandhi's Khilafat debacle on Chitranjan Das? Any guesses? It is mission get Bose. Since Bose would some one and a half years after this episode be put under Chitranjan Das's wing and as Chitranjan Das is supposedly a Muslim appeaser, therefore Subhash Bose is too. This is the premise he is trying to build. Fact is that Chitranjan Das actually belonged to this faction that stood in opposition to Gandhian politics and autocracy. He was more of a revolutionary makeup and used to fight cases for revolutionaries of the Anushilan party. This is the reason Gandhi put Subhash Bose under his wing. When Bose met Gandhi for the first time in July 1921, he openly talked about his fiery ideals and Gandhi thought, The quote above from Chitran Jandas that I gave earlier shows that he was also a very pragmatic man. He was clearly talking in terms of dealing with Muslims rather than flighty Hindu-Muslim unity fantasies. Which brings us to the issue of the Bengal Pact of 1923. Now, within the Congress, there was opposition not only to uh, the Khilafat liaison, but also the idea of non-cooperation itself. These two issues were working in the politics of the time parallelly. A whole lot of people who opposed non-cooperation perceived prominent leaders like Annie Besant, G.S. Kharpade, Bipin Chandrapal, Surendranath Banerjee, Tej Bahadur Sapru, Madan Mohan Malviya. They left the party subsequently. Telak had already passed away by this time in August 1920. He also believed in what was termed responsive cooperation and was not a buyer of Gandhi's non-cooperation. Chitranjan Das was firmly in this camp. He advocated a thing called internal obstruction, also known as council entry program, which proposed gaining entry into the legislatures with a view to offering uniform, continuous and consistent obstruction to the government on vital issues. Though strongly opposed to the British and an advocate of the ancient Indian way of life, he as a matter of fact rejected ideas of political and economic development of India along western lines. But Government of India Act was a great opportunity. It gave some important areas of governance to Indians like agriculture, local government, health and education, all of which were uh, critical subjects for Indians. Now the problem in Bengal, religious demography, with Muslims 54% and Hindus 44% and as the posts were supposed to be elected councils. This was a peculiar problem in Bengal as well as Punjab. Punjab also had round about the same proportion of Muslims to Hindus. But there was also the factor of cultural bonds 
of Hindu Bengalis with Muslim Bengalis and Hindu Punjabis, naturally with Sikh Punjabis, but also with Muslim Punjabis. And I'll come to this point a little later. Unless one takes a stand like Jinnah, that there cannot be any middle ground and no solution possible except partitioning the country, the singular recourse available uh, to the leaders that time was figuring out ways for the two communities to work together to arrive at a functional arrangement. Sarvesh Tiwari types and Shankar Sharan, even Sitaram Goel, keep going on and on about what Muslims are like. Look at their book, look at their ideology, look at the past. We know all that. Neither is the Islamic doctrine nor are Muslims going to go away. Muslims will continue to be a turbulent minority and a violent majority. And Muslim subnationalism will also always be there. The problem with these ideologues is that when they have ridden long enough on their ideology, they don't know what to do when they land on terra firma. You cannot wish away Muslims with Hindutva ideas. It is not that Shitranjan Das thought, as Tiwari claims, that freedom cannot be won without Muslims. Das doesn't say this at any point. Reality is, however, that Muslims are there and you have to manage this demography. Hindutva to bahut jarli. Ab aage, ke root ke jao, okay? baat karni. They have no plan how to achieve this united greater India. They just dream about it. Now in Bengal, though majority population was of Muslims, political power rested with the Hindus. All the educated, enlightened and empowered people were Bengali Hindus. The political and social life was dominated by them. This equation is what was threatened with the Government of India Act. The Hindus had to retain their position of dominance faced with this new prospect of electoral politics. The Bengal Muslim League was created at the behest of the British. Bose was not wrong about division created by British because he was not talking in some ideal terms, but what actually happened at the time of Bangabang. Viceroy Curzon partitioned Bengal on this pretext of providing rep greater representation to Muslims and it was favoured by them since it gave them a Muslim majority region in the eastern half and they would have catapulted to power due to sheer numbers. So in December 1923, the Bengal Pact was drawn up which made significant concessions towards the Muslim community, some of which appeared disadvantageous to Hindus, but these were not extravagant considering that they were proportionate to their population. This is the basis of democracy. Even if Hindus kept power in their hands, it would have left discontent festering, which boiled over at times in the form of rats, and which gave the British the opportunity to create permanent fault lines. And don't please try to say that they did not do so, they definitely did. The idea was to give Muslims a fair representation to form a federation of Muslims and Hindus, to come together and cooperate, so that the question of partition did not arise. Das wanted to integrate them rather than having two hostile demographies perpetually at war. He therefore opposed the idea of separate electorates which eventually became the basis of partition. But this was outvoted by Hindus because they feared they'd be outnumbered in most constituencies. But it is foolish to evaluate the provisions of the Bengal Pact against 
today's considerations based on what has already happened that's the partition rather than in the backdrop of those times when partition was merely a prospect that most people were not even ready to look at wo to aisa hai na ki ab murgi kat gayi hai aur aapko lagta hai ki ji bachi nahi sakti thi us samay jab dono taraf se khicha tani ho rahi thi to log yahi soch rahe the ki kaise bachaya ja sakta hai the bengal pact therefore addressed head on some of the flashpoints that had been the cause of violence and riots in the past like playing of music processions slaughter by muslims language etc it was not a woolly headed dream of bhaichara or appeasement it was a straightforward deal point for point addressing the issues between the two communities at the level of the leadership both had some and both had to concede some a section of hindus protested that time against the provisions like there was one provision uh, whereby muslims were assured that their practice of cow slaughter on eid will not be hindered and in return slaughter will not be practiced in any way offending to hindu sensibilities this allowance aroused the indignance of hindus though again this was bit of a futility since in british india cow slaughter was as it is legal large scale slaughter was carried out to cater to uh, europeans and for supplying to the army it made no sense imposing bans only on muslims and for that one day besides it was not an extraordinary concession since there were such compromises at other places too for example there's a precedent from ayodhya in 1915 there a similar agreement was formalized between hindus and muslims and the latter agreed to carry out their butchery practice beyond a place called jalpanala which marked the periphery of the city and the proportion of muslims in ayodhya is far less than in bengal moreover the bengal pact specified that except on the occasion of eid al adha no cow slaughter will take place out of respect for india's hindu community and this was accepted by the muslims yet uh, the bengal pact did evoke outrage from some quarters and finally the national congress did not pass it but it brought tremendous support of the muslims to the swaraj party and made the muslim league redundant in bengal in the bargain the dominant position in the provincial council and in bengal politics was retained by the hindus in spite of absolute muslim majority losing this would have been a far greater loss because until that time muslim league had no representation among the population they were insignificant this is the reason suravardi whose father was one of the founding members of muslim league had joined the Cong- uh, swaraj party instead was the experiment successful like how unlike the khilafat fiasco Swaraj party's success at the provincial legislative council was remarkable winning majority seats in the councils in 1924 the swarajists also captured power in the calcutta municipal corporation and das became the first popularly elected mayor of calcutta this was when subhash bose was appointed ceo of calcutta swaraj party inflicted repeated defeats on the government on vital issues and ensured the demise of british bureaucracy in its earlier form in bengal not only did they win hands down 
they managed to keep Bengal in remarkable peace and communal harmony for the next two to three years. In a time when scores of Hindu-Muslim riots would happen all over the country each year. And in spite of the Bengal Pact being defeated by the Congress, Hindu-Muslim cooperation continued, attested by many contemporary accounts. Even after Chitranjan Das's death, in the beginning of the 1926 riots, we find Muslim leaders like Suravardi participating in pacification campaigns. By the middle of the year, however, he had turned so virulently communal that the government was considering externing him. So, look at Chitranjan Das's ingenuity and discernment that he managed to keep such extreme tendencies going together for almost three years without friction. Tiwari says that as the CEO of Calcutta Cooperation, Subhash Bose outdid Chitranjan Das, who had only proposed 55% communal reservation, that too in Muslim majority districts, which Calcutta was not. Subhash Bose appointed in Calcutta Cooperation 25 Mohammedans out of 33 vacant posts not on the grounds of any merit, but for their creed. First of all, Subhash Bose was CEO of Calcutta for barely two to three months. Moreover, this was not his doing. It was a clause in the Bengal Pact itself, that until the 55% strength in appointments was achieved, 80% would be earmarked for Muslims in Calcutta only, to make up for the overall deficiency in Bengal, because in the countryside there were hardly any educated Muslims. They constituted largely the poor peasantry. Bose was just explaining the official position since the Bengal Pact had been passed by the Bengal Provincial uh, Congress Committee. This is not the same as appeasement today, which is disproportionate privileges as post-independence governments have been doing, including your Hindutva heroes. In fact, the Bengal Pact laid down clearly that no religious community will be given undue preference no government or public funds will be devoted to any religious institution or purpose. Now, you can keep imagining an ideal prospect according to Hindutva, but have we been able to take off even the loudspeakers of the mosques till date? You haven't been able to rectify the situation after most Muslims leaving India, after 70 years of independence, of which around one and a half decades were of your beloved Hindutva governments, and you are singling out Chitranjandas who was faced with a 55% Muslim majority population. He did not believe in the composite culture, Mirage. He just had a task at hand. He was a remarkably clear-sighted, practical, yet a constructive uh, man. He is still widely regarded in Bangladesh. They mark his anniversary every year. In fact, uh, from the Events, it becomes clear that in Bengal, the fragile communal situation was hinged on the personality of Chitranjan Das alone. The first major riots in Bengal happened after his death, the 1926 riots. Sarvesh puts undue emphasis on these riots to prove God knows what point. Riots have been a regular feature of the Hindu-Muslim relationship since 18th century. To give an idea of the situation that time, since 1923, there were over 100 riots officially recorded, clustered mainly around Bombay, Punjab, Delhi, the United Provinces and Bihar, out of which 31 had been counted from the beginning of 1926 till 22nd August of that year. 
when this particular series of riots began in Bengal. 91 riots were there between 1923 and 1927 in Uttar Pradesh alone. So what are you even talking about? In fact, a red sheet uh, that was being circulated during the 1926 Bengal riots called to memory several previous recent riots in Kohat, Ludhiana, Meerut, Saharanpur, Ajmer, Kanpur, Lucknow, Allahabad and Calcutta. So I don't know what really is the point proven here. Then he brings up the case of Tarakeshwar Satyagraha. Tarakeshwar is an ancient shrine and a medieval temple in Hooghly district of Bengal, which was in the hands of the Giri lineage of sannyasis. Tiwari uses very cunning rhetoric to appeal to the popular sentiment of Hindus against the government control of temples, which is a sour point in today's politics. In order to portray the Tarakeshwar movement as Chitranjan Das along with his protege Bose hell-bent on a secular takeover of Tarakeshwar temple which was foiled, thank God, by the Bengal Brahman Sabha. The poor Mahant was made to step down by the Congress. I cannot imagine how can one distort facts to this extent, to defame a popular movement by devotees, to regain their place of worship against a veritable villain of a Mahant in league with an oppressive and alien British government. Remember, Congress is not government at this time. They had just marginal authority over some barely four to five administrative councils. An accurate comparison would be in fact the Sabarimala devotees movement against the communist government in Kerala. Sole exception being that the priests in Tarakeshwar were in cahoots with the uh, British government. And Sabrimala movement was to safeguard against secular liberalism, whilst in Tarakeshwar it was against libertinism. This movement started sometime in April-May 1924, when two saints, Swami Vishwananda and Swami Satchidananda, took the initiative on behalf of the devotees to remove the glaring aberrations that had crept into the management of this age-old religious institution, turning it into a den of corrupt and immoral activities and against the oppression suffered by pilgrims visiting the shrine. The Mahans at the helm of affairs, especially Madhav Chandragiri and uh, Satish Chandragiri, were said to have been the embodiments of irresponsible power and sensuality. So resentment had been building up as a genuine reaction against the abuses of the later Mahans. And Swami Vishwananda had been on one previous occasion mercilessly beaten up by the Tarakeshwar Mahan's goons for standing up to him. They formed an organization of sannyasis called Mahavirtal, which then formally approached the Bengal Provincial Congress with a signed appeal to start a non-violent satyagraha. They specifically alluded to the Akali movement and SGPC's correspondence with Gandhi seeking permission to begin Satyagraha in order to wrest control of their sites from the Udasi Mahans. And the details of immorality and misappropriations by the last Mahant of Tarakeshwar, Dandiswami Satish Chandragiri, behind this unrest are no less shocking, including appropriating the estates of the trust as 
private property and lording over it like a zamidar. He lived a luxurious life, moving around on elephants and horses, a total debauch who was said to have given up his commitment to the injunctions of Brahmacharya. He was a giri only in name. He had lakhs worth of jewellery stashed away in banks and he had received the title of Raja from the British government. He had a private army of Gurkhas known as Birbhatradal and hired goons to terrorize the tenants of his estate, students and shopkeepers. His hirelings used to block the pilgrims access to the temple to extort money from them and he was notorious for violating the modesty of women pilgrims. Sorry if this sounds like a Bollywoodish villain, but unfortunately this is what it was. These later Tarakeshwar Mahans were infamously corrupt and this was not the first time that they had been involved in such shameful scandals. There was a previous case a couple of decades before this, very famous by the name Tarakeshwar affair, also known as the Elokeshi affair, wherein a respectable wife who had gone there seeking treatment for infertility had been raped by the chief man. It culminated in a horrific case of honor killing. And Tiwari is making a case for these profligates. Ye to in Mahashaya sense of dharma hai. Das and Subhash Pose, when the present case was brought to their notice, went to the place on a fact-finding mission in April 1934. And thereafter, a formal report was made. The Mahavital had also written separately to Hindu Mahasabha on April 3rd, 1924. And independent inquiries made by a committee instituted by the Hindu Sabha of uh, Bada Bazaar also referred to the illegal exactions by the agents of the Mahant for, from the pilgrims, uh, vendors and residents of the pilgrim town as well as two cases of violation of women visiting the place of pilgrimage. So all these charges were confirmed by the Hindu Mahasabha. Subhash Pose then wrote to the provincial Hindu Sabha based on the findings to take up the issue, failing which the Bengal Congress Committee would have to bring itself in. And hereafter there is no involvement of Subhash Pose in this affair. He is not there in any capacity in any of the committees or reports. So, offices of Mahavidal were established at Tarakeshwar and Calcutta and a committee was made of members of the Bengal Hindu Sabha, Brahman Sabha and Mahavidal. They also had the support of the community of saints, among them Pandit Dharanath Bhattacharya and the Samkhya master Vedanta Tirtha Sri Sharachandra. Other temples also gave support, notably Balaji Dev temple. And the Akali set up a langar khana for the protesters. The Congress provided logistical support, but they were not directly involved at this stage. Basically, it was a religious reform movement and not a political movement. Satyagraha started in earnest for free access of devotees to the temple, for restoring worship according to Shastras and to ensure the dignity of female pilgrims, a massive democratic movement to reclaim the temple which had been turned into a huge private fief by the Mahant. The Mahant responded by setting his army upon the people. He summoned the British government to his aid which was followed by brutally repressive measures, shooting, jailing of a number of devotees, 
mercilessly beaten up in custody, including 14 minors in Bankura jail. Several lives were lost. This was when, at the request of Mahavirdal, the Bengal Provincial Congress Committee actively got involved because they couldn't handle it any longer. But Sarvesh Tiwari, of course, finds the remark of Lord Lytton more trustworthy, who dismissed it as a colossal hoax. The same Lytton who made the smirking remark that Indian village women complaining of rape by British police were lying to smear the police. He was, of course, made to withdraw his remark, but these are the kind of sources used by Tiwari. Far from taking over the temple, Das clearly stated that he would be no party to any settlement which will not protect the people of Tarakeshwar or those who stood, stood by a true religious spirit against the Mahant. The temple and the debtor property, property devoted to the deity, must also be protected. Tiwari says that Gandhi had to intervene to stop Chitranjan Das from taking over the temple. Again, plain lie. One Subodh Krishnabasu, identifying himself as the secretary of the Hindu Temple Reform League, had sent a telegram to the governor, the viceroy and to Gandhi, praying their intervention since after the publication of Deshbandhu Das's message to adopt Satyagraha, riot and violence started this morning in Tarakeshwar Temple. Public apprehends repetition of Chauri Chora. This was found to be spurious and the man turned out to be a lackey of the Mahant. So there was a verification campaign against Das, of course, planted by the Mahant's agents, accusing him of all and sundry, creating friction between landlords and tenants, portraying him as a proponent of the permanent settlement, calling him a Brahmo who wanted to do away with Hindu shrines, of taking political advantage of the struggle and using temple funds for his party. Canards along usual lines which Sriman Tripathi also eagerly circulates. But to wind up quoting Das's own words on this, I do not desire any friction between landlords and tenants. I have opposed the idea of such class war from public platforms. The question of the repeal of permanent settlement is an undesirable question to raise. And in my opinion, whatever steps are taken must be taken after the attainment of self-government and even then only as a matter of agreement between landlords and tenants. I am not a Brahmo, I am a Hindu and I claim to be sincere. It is absolutely untrue that I want to take up Hindu shrines to finance my party. My point of view is the Hindu point of view. I want the shrines to be purified and reformed. I do not want to remove Mahanship but to have a devout Mohant appointed so that the service in the temple may be properly supervised and income applied to the good of the pilgrims and the locality by establishing such educational and charitable institutions as may be required for the good of the people. In my opinion, this is not politics, but if it is so regarded, I am not ashamed of it. Nor is it true that I want the Mohanship to go to some Bengali instead of a Hindi-speaking gentleman. I do not wish to interfere in the slightest degree with the traditions of the particular sect to which the Mohant belongs. In the end, Chitranjan Das wanted an independent trust of stakeholders, created from among the community of devotees and worshippers to look after the affairs of the temple. 
the temple as well as the estate along with other properties and effects would be considered as public properties managed by the committee alone. And the word public here doesn't mean the government, it means the people in general. He had proposed a settlement whereby the incumbent Mahant Satish Chandragiri would abdicate in favour of his chela Prabhat Chandragiri who would be under the control of the committee. The settlement made provisions for the maintenance of the temple, worship of the deity, development of facilities at the pilgrimage, charities undertaken by the committee and allowances for the outgoing, incumbent as well as the future months. Everything except secular causes or nation building activities as Tiwari claims. These are outright malicious lies. But the settlement was in the end opposed by the Brahman Sabha because they wanted a committee of Brahmins to be interested with the running of the temple. So, Brahman Sabha and Mahavir Dal separately approached the government to appoint a receiver. And this is when government intervention happened, not by Chitranjandas. Tiwari's entire refrain is built on layers and layers of such misrepresentations convoluted logic and plain fibs. It would take all day if I undertake to deconstruct the elaborate slander. So let me take up some basic concepts uh, which give us an idea of the times and help fit facts correctly in the picture because one can endlessly keep perpetuating misconceptions and uh, prejudice. The alternative is to gain a perspective with which to understand and learn from past events. The first one is the term leftist, which Tiwari uses abundantly to show Bose as a communist. You will find Subhash Bose also emphatically identified himself as a leftist. But the left, center and right political positions in those days were different from today, as in uh, right representing the Hindu nationalists, uh, the center the secularists and the left the communists. Left in those days denoted the faction, especially those within the Congress that stood for aggressive uh, means of winning the rights of Indians and ultimately freedom, colloquially known as Karamdal. So all of these, Lal, Bal, Pal, Chitranjandas, Vithalbhai Patel, Motilal Nehru, Narsimha, Chintaman Kelkar, etc were known as leftists or even extremists. It was these people who were known as the Swarajists and who eventually formed the separate Swaraj party. In Subhash Bose's own words, in the present political phase of Indian life, leftism means anti-imperialism. A genuine anti-imperialist is one who believes in undiluted independence, not Mahatma Gandhi's substance of independence, as the political objective and in uncompromising national struggle as the means for attaining it. He described those with a softer approach, the Naramdal, as those prepared for a deal with imperialism. About the difference in their aims, he writes, the goal of the Congress as defined in the constitution had been self-government within the British Empire. This had antagonized all those congressmen who believed in the severance of the British connection or who refused to be tied down to the empire. 
to enable the left fingers to return to the congress fold the goal of the congress was declared to be swaraj which means literally self rule and it was left to individual congressmen to define swaraj in their own way mr gandhi however defined swaraj to mean self government within the empire if possible and outside if necessary so gandhi and his followers had no mission of independence at all that's why the parties swaraj and forward bloc were formed communists were a different class of politicians altogether cpi was established in 1920s its leaders were sachidanand vishnu ghate manavendranath roy etc and true to the marxist doctrine they tried their violent revolutionary means to upstage the british but not out of nationalist sentiment they all had these extra territorial loyalties towards russia various communist leaders abroad and their ideology of the nation bos repudiated communism in the clearest terms in his elaborately laid out criticisms of uh, communism he wrote to introduce fresh cleavage within our ranks by talking openly of class war and working for it appears to me at the present moment to be a crime against nationalism to what straits we may be reduced by a malassimilation of karl marx and bakunin becomes manifest when we come across a certain class of indian laborites or communists if you call them so who openly advocate the use of british or foreign cloth on the plea of internationalism if i had the remotest intention of becoming a bolshevik agent i would have jumped at the offer made and taken the first available boat to europe if i succeeded in recouping my health i could then have joined the gay band who trot about from paris to leningrad talking of world revolution and emitting blood and thunder in their utterances but i have no such intention or desire so bose was well aware of the folly of socialist casteist ideas which other indian leaders and writers were are till now easily deceived by and have been inserting permanent fissures within indian society subhash chandra bose was very clear in stating that the communist model of internationalism was incompatible with the in with india because it is removed from her spiritual ethos and that india in india a national awakening is in most cases heralded by a religious reformation and a cultural renaissance there was an incident during bose's arrest in october 1924 the british wanted to keep him in longer and remove him uh, to a far off place since they saw him as dangerous they therefore tried to devise stronger charges against him to defame him and among these uh, was the charge of corresponding with communist leaders abroad bose was forced to file a defamation petition through his brother vehemently denying the charges so association with communists was actually seen as an ignominious circumstance subsequently the communists have consistently tried to appropriate the revolutionary nationalist legacy characters of the indian revolutionary movement are portrayed in their writings as communists for example surya sen there's a movie on master da surya sen in which indian revolutionaries are shown giving the slogan kranti ki jai ho whereas this was never the revolutionary's call 
they were entirely motivated by devotion for the motherland and their cry was Vande Mataram. Then Bhagat Singh, Jugantar, the 1857 mutiny, they portray them all as communist movements and personalities and Subhash Chandra Bose, which is funny considering that uh, these communists used to abuse Subhash Bose in the profaneous terms in their publications, which I am not reproducing here for the sake of brevity. But they hated the Indian National Army. They were West loyalists. They snooped on INA operatives and acted as British informants in the war period. And uh, the right-wing dopes. They actually advance uh, the leftist narrative and deprecate their own items. They are a brainless and petty lot, completely lacking perspective and only intent on one-upmanship against one another and self-promotion. There is a concept in Silicon Valley. When startups want to raise funds, they project their technology as disruptive technology to get the attention of venture capitalists and the HNIs. This is what these so-called uh, scholars do, come up with sensational theories to grab the attention of people. And unfortunately, these are readily lapped up by a section that subscribes to these prejudicial ideas. Tiwari refers to Bose all through in his litany as a Marxist secularist. The reason Subhash Bose founded the forward block. This is again a case of uh, anachronist distortion. Truth is, forward block was formed around four years after the Swaraj party had disintegrated in the time when Bose was in Mandalay prison and soon after Chitranjan Das died. Bose subsequently found it impossible to come to terms with Gandhian tyranny and had to leave uh, the Congress. But like the Swaraj party, forward block was a part of the Congress and represented the more fiery and forceful elements among them. It was known as forward block of the International Congress. So when did this change? In February 1946, when a forward block workers assembly was held in Jabalpur and at this point Indian communists uh, started infiltrating the party. The session resulted in a declaration. Forward Bloc is a socialist party, accepting the theory of class struggle in its fullest implications and a program of revolutionary mass action for the attainment of socialism leading to a classless society. This was a marked departure from Subhash Bose's policy and vision. No wonder this did not go down well with the Swarajist nationalists and the party split forming into two factions. Uh, Forward Bloc Subhashist, the uh, nationalist faction led by Ramchandra Sakharam Ruikar and Sardul Singh Kavishar, and Forward Bloc Marxist, the communist faction led by Shilhad Riyagi and Kishore Narsingh Joglikar. Thereafter, in February 1948, a party national council meet was held in Varanasi, in which it was decided to sever all ties with Indian National Congress. This was actually a reaction to a Congress uh, decision earlier that year to expel all dissenting tendencies within the Congress. Thereafter, a lot of splits happened, uh, especially after uh, Sharad Bose died. But uh, basically, the leftist Marxist character of Forward Bloc in its 
various permutations and combinations and avatars was acquired over a couple of decades after Subhash and Sharad Bose's deaths. Now the concept of secularism, communalism and nationalism in those days. Tiwari is outraged that Subhash Bose describes the Hindu Mahasabha as a communal party, speaking of them in the same terms as the Muslim League. And he refers to the Indian National Congress as nationalist, just as the politics of today. But the term communal also did not have the same connotations that time as today. Firstly, the term secularism as counterposed with communalism was not much in circulation at that time. It was hardly used. The opposite of the term communalism was nationalism. And this simply meant that some parties uh, catered to limited community interests while others were nationalist in orientation. It is in this sense that the words of Subhash Chandra Bose after a meeting with Savarkar on June 21st or 22nd 1940 have to be regarded. Bose had said Mr. Jinnah was then thinking only of how to realize his plan of Pakistan with the help of the British. Mr. Savarkar seemed to be oblivious of the international situation and was only thinking how Hindus could secure military training by entering Britain's army in India. From these interviews, the writer himself uh, was forced to the conclusion that nothing could be expected from either the Muslim League or the Hindu Mahasabha. Alighting out of this meeting, Bose appeared somewhat disappointed in terms of the outcome. And his words that time have been used by leftist secularist writers to claim Bose as their own, as these have been used by our friend Tiwari to implicate him as anti-Hindu. Bose's outlook was principally nationalistic, who did not want the intrinsic weaknesses of Indians to come in the way of their greatness as a nation in the world stage as he envisioned India. He appears frustrated in his attempt to build a broad coalition for a nationwide movement against the British government and was clearly disappointed with both. To understand this better, let us take a look at how Aurobindo thought about these two characters at the opposite ends of the spectrum. He says, strange as it may appear, Mr. Savarkar and Mr. Jinnah, instead of being opposed to each other on the one nation versus two nations issue are in complete agreement about it. Both agree, not only agree, but insist that there are two nations in India, one the Muslim nation and the other the Hindu nation. This was the cause for Bose's frustration. He was aware that if India failed to bridge this gap, she will be fractured and weakened, which would suit the imperialists' designs just as they had been successful in doing in other parts of the world. This was the feeling of all leaders with a nationalist orientation and this is what uh, even Aurobindo said. India is free, but she has not achieved unity, only a fissured and broken freedom. The old communal division into Hindu and Muslim seems to have hardened into the figure of a permanent political division of the country. It is to be hoped that the Congress and the nation will not accept the settled fact as forever settled or as anything more than a temporary expedient. For if it lasts, India may be seriously weakened, even crippled. Civil strife may remain always possible. 
possible even a new invasion and foreign conquest, the partition of the country must go. It is to be hoped by a slackening of tension, by a progressive understanding of the need of peace and concord, by the constant necessity of common and concerted action, even of an instrument of union for that purpose. In this way, unity may come about under whatever form. The exact form may have a pragmatic but not a fundamental importance. But by whatever means, the division must and will go. For without it, the destiny of India might be seriously impaired and even frustrated. But that must not be. These words echo the thought and motivation of Subhash Bose. Now, Savarkar was also in this group that did not want partition. As Aurobindo says further, they, Savarkar and Jinnah, differ only as regards the terms and conditions on which the two nations should live. Mr. Jinnah says India should be cut up into two, Pakistan and Hindustan, the Muslim nation to occupy Pakistan and the Hindu nation to occupy Hindustan. Mr. Savarkar, on the other hand, insists that although there are two nations in India, India shall not be divided into two parts, one for Muslims and the other for the Hindus, that the two nations shall dwell in one country and shall live under the mantle of one single constitution, that the constitution shall be such that the Hindu nation will be enabled to occupy a predominant position that is due to it and the Muslim nation made to live in the position of subordinate cooperation with the Hindu nation. Now, this is faithful to the ideology that Savarkar represents, but it does not address how this ideal situation is going to be achieved. Would Muslims accept the proposition of a predominant position of Hindus? If indeed partition was not acceptable, as an option, the only other option was accepting a workable compromise that ensured mutual coexistence and peace. This entailed a hard-headed, honest look at the differences, sensitivities, triggers and to develop a scope of cooperation. This is what the Bengal Pact did and the Lucknow Pact of 1916 proposed to do. This cannot happen from a rigid ideological position. Fact is, even until this time, most people did not, could not conceive of a partition of India. This is the reason for limited appeal of both these parties, uh, which we will look at presently. S. Krishnaiyar, in a forward block issue of December 30th, 1939, writes of Savarkar as follows. And it can be assumed it reflects uh, Bose's view as well, since he used to edit uh, this maxim. Mr. Savarkar has evidently been, been embittered by the sinister growth of Muslim communalism in the country. It is undoubtedly a most sickening and dangerous phenomenon in Indian politics today. But his panache for the grave evil is undoubtedly of a desperate nature. It is neither practicable nor prudent to divide the country into warring camps and thus prepare it for a future bloodbath. These lines clearly reveal Bose's acknowledgement of the Muslim menace and an understanding of Savarkar's reasons. Yet he stressed on a practical solution for bridging the widening chasm, failing which the only casualty would be Indian nation-owned. Now, were there any Muslim nationalists to work with? 
Sarvesh Tiwari has a problem that Fazlul Haq is uh, referred to as a nationalist Muslim by Bose. But he neglects to tell you that during the Khilafat movement, Haq led the anti-Khilafat non-cooperation faction within the Bengal Provincial Muslim League against the pro-Ottoman faction. He was like the Swarajists. He favoured working uh, within the constitutional framework uh, rather than boycotting legislatures and colleges. He was instrumental in the Lucknow Pact between the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League, which was a hope of bringing a resolution to the differences between the two communities, the communities to avert partition. He concurrently held the presidentship of Muslim League and the general secretaryship of Congress. He resigned uh, from Congress later. Now, Diarchy gave way to an autonomous provincial system with the Government of India Act of 1935, which replaced provincial ministries responsible to legislatures for some of the functions of government with ministries responsible for all. And even though Fazlul Haq won the elections of Bengal Provincial Council with heavy majority, he gave half the positions in his cabinet to Hindus. His second government, formed in December 1941, was a coalition. And supported by whom? Not the Muslim League. Haq had been ousted from the League after a conflict with uh, Jinnah. Supporters included the Krishak Praja Party, led by Shamsuddin Ahmad, the forward bloc, Swarajist members of the Bengal Congress and the Hindu Mahasabha, led by Shama Prasad Mukherjee. Even in this cabinet, Hindus and Muslims were evenly represented. In fact, Savarkar expressed appreciation for the successful functioning of the government under Fazlul Haq, the same who Tiwari calls a jihadi. It was after Haq's resignation, forced by the British governor, that Muslim League separatist politics came to the fore in Bengal. Haq later joined the Bengal Krishak Praja Party, which staunchly opposed the idea of Pakistan. It should be understood that the Government of India Act of 1935 was not really well-meaning. It was actually meant to break India to several pieces by increasing the power of the provinces, uh, princely states and minority communities who refused to let the Congress, which pitched itself and was perceived as a nationalist, uh, as a national party, to speak for them. The communal award of 1932 was a prelude to it, creating separate electorates for minority religions and the so-called depressed classes and reserved seats. And this is what uh, fierce nationalists like Bose were against, creating factions instead of reinforcing the national identity. They saw merit in measures that mainstreamed all uh, identities into a national one. And Bose's statement, which Tiwari is portraying negatively, affirmed this view. The introduction of Khilafat, uh, of the Khilafat question into Indian politics was unfortunate, as has already been pointed out. If the Khilafatist Muslims had not started a separate organization, but had joined the Indian National Congress, the consequences would not have been so undesirable. This is not appeasement. It was 
not said to justify the violence uh, that resulted from the Khilafat affair. He was against ghettoization of identities, which can turn any community against the uh, national identity. This is what Muslim League politics began with, first demanding reservations, then separate electorates and finally separate nations. Didn't we see it happening with the Sikhs, Dalit minoritism, Buddhist separatism? Even some Jains have started this Hindu hostile discourse. The story of uh, Shaivites persecuting the Jains in Madurai, etc. The problem therefore is more with minority identity politics rather than minority itself. Creating factions based on minority identities is anti-national. It is equal to conceding that minority aspirations will not be fulfilled within the national identity. Ironically, we continue the uh, same politics today. This is what Subhash Post meant by communalism. Stating that Muslims and Hindus are separate nations is communalism, irrespective of whether it is said aggressively uh, like Muslim League or defensively like Mahasabha. And even if the latter did not actually want partition, one has to acknowledge that Muslim communal aspirations are going to remain no matter how many parts you cut out of your country. It has to be minimized and managed by mainstreaming, making them believe that their aspirations will be fulfilled by a united nation only. Clearly, a whole lot of Muslims pre-partition also thought so. This will not work by making differences with their worldview the ground for permanent antagonism. It is quite clear from Bose's calculated and clear-cut uh, moves in Germany that he knew well enough how the Muslim mind worked, but he realized that it had to be negotiated, not negated, and neutralized from interfering with the national process. This Akhand Bharat picture, which the Virat Hindus faced on their profiles, but are clueless in reality how this is going to be achieved. Bose was actually working towards it. He had a much greater vision of India. This cannot be achieved in an ideologue's, ideologue's purist dream. It needs a very clear mind in touch with real politics. So, what were the realistic prospects? One has to remember that until 1937, Muslim League politics continued to be focused on India rather than separatism. Even in the 1930 declaration of Muhammad Iqbal, the idea was of a federal structure within an Indian confederacy. Muslim League politics weared off towards separatism in 1940 with the Lahore Resolution. In this, Haq had actually proposed several autonomous Muslim-majority states rather than a unified Pakistan. It is notable that delegates of Punjab and Bengal were firmly opposed to the idea of Pakistan. They were for autonomous states based on ethnicity and uh, religious demography. Muslim League started their mobilization for Pakistan 1937 onwards under Jinnah with processions and strikes etc. But they did not have significant success. Even the students and faculty of Aligarh Muslim University supported the All India Nationalist Movement until 1939. Muslim League for the first time started attracting masses after the Lahore Resolution and 
even then they did not by any means represent the majority of Muslims. In opposition to the Lahore resolution, a gathering of the All India Azad Muslim Conference, a huge coalition of nationalist Muslims representing multiple organizations came together in Delhi in April 1940, giving a call for a united India. The attendance at this rally was reported to be about five times than the attendance at the league meeting. They fiercely opposed separatist Muslims. Their leaders were the Deobandi scholar Maulana Saeed Hussain Ahmed Madani. He travelled across British India spreading the idea that he wrote about in his book, Composite Nationalism and Islam. <clears throat> which uh, stood for Hindu-Muslim unity and opposed the concept of partition of India. One of their very popular uh, leaders was Allah Baksh Sumro. He was murdered in uh, 1943, most likely by Muslim League goons. And after his uh, demise, it is said, it became easier for the All India Muslim League to push the demand for creation of Pakistan. Then there was the Unionist Party of Punjab with leaders like Sikandar Hayat Khan, Fazli Hassan and Chotu Ram, which stood for united Punjabi identity, including Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus. Like the Swarajists, uh, they had prevailed in Punjab politics until 1923 and dominated right up till the 1937 provincial elections, in which Muslim League uh, lost dismally. Muslim League was a very elitist outfit and not until the 1946 provincial elections did they have any significant electoral wins. There was another movement in Punjab, the Khaksas of Allama Mashriki. I am surprised that Sarvesh Tiwari labels Mashriki as a jihadi. The Khaksas were kind of Islamic Unitarians, if you will. They believed in unity of the divine and of mankind and rejected Islamic exclusivity and the idea of jihad. They were fiercely opposed to the partition agenda of Muslim League. They were known to have saved many Hindu and Sikh lives in the partition violence. Some Khaksar volunteers gave up their own lives trying to save them. The organization also fought many INA cases. They did want a dispensation by majority Muslims, but they cannot be called jihadis. This is a case of tilting at the windmills, which Virat Hindus do all the time. Then there were the Khudai Khidmatgar, led by Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, and scores of others, Anjumani Vatan Baluchistan, All India Jamur Muslim League, All India Momin Conference, Jamaat Ulema-e Hind, Majlis Eharar Ul Islam, All India Momin Conference, All India Shia Political Conference, Krishak Praja Party, All India Muslim Majlis, Jamaat Ahli Hadis and many Christian and uh, Sikh groups as well. So was Bose uh, ignorant about Muslim separatism and pan-Islamism? In one of his Radio Azad Hind broadcasts, he says, I appeal to the brave Majlis-e-Aharar, the Nationalist Muslim Party of India that started the civil disobedience campaign in 1939 against Britain's war effort before any other party did so. I appeal to the Jamaatul Ulema, the old representative organization of the Ulemas or the Muslim Divines of India, 
led by that distinguished patriot and leader Mufti Kifayatullah. I appeal to the Azad Independent Muslim League, another important organization of the Nationalist Muslims of India. I appeal to the Akali Dal, the leading Nationalist Sikh Party of India. And last but not the least, I appeal to the Praja Party of Bengal, which commands the confidence of that province and is led by well-known patriots. I have no doubt that if all these organizations join in this struggle, the day of India's liberation will be drawn nearer. As can be seen, the appeal is addressed selectively to those Muslim organizations that stood for a unified India, something that he desperately strove for. Bose's idea was to harness these sentiments of unity rather than alienating them with uh, hardline postures. We have today in India created one block of all these divergent streams of Muslims because of minoritism and then we complain Muslims act as a block. This is exactly what Bose was against. He was rallying Muslims who identified with the Indian nation rather than pan-Islamism. And if there weren't any nationalist Muslims, why do Hindu nationalists today talk uh, to people like Tarek Patel, Taslim Anasreen, Tahir Gora, Khalid Umar? Virat Hindus rally behind uh, these people. Tiwari has also claimed that Bose was ambivalent on the question of partition, basing this on a singular sentence that he picks out from one of the Azad Hind broadcasts, where Bose actually throws a calculated bait at Jinnah that Pakistan could be created only, only under a national government. Tiwari ignores the literally hundreds of emphatic statements before and after this from Bose vehemently opposing partition and playing Jinnah and the Muslim League. The particular broadcast where he is quoting from has long passages before this sentence addressing all nationalist sentiments to come together for independence. He mentions the nationalist Muslim organizations to keep up their struggle for a united India. He elaborately explains how Anglo-American internationalism exploits uh, divisions to break up nations, weaken them and dominate them. He says uh, that the British you support will break you up and keep exploiting you. A quote uh, from this address, the Union Jack would then fly not only over the capital of India as at present, but over the capitals of Hindustan, Pakistan, Rajasthan, Khalistan and Pathanistan and the Indian people would be given a British guarantee of permanent enslavement. Let Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah and his Muslim League ponder over this. And then he says uh, that line for Jinnah, ke bhai, bina independence ke aapko Pakistan bhi milega. Meaning why not come together uh, for the sake of independence? Because Muslim League was supporting the British war, in return extracting the promise of Pakistan. This entire speech Tiwari has not mentioned. He only picks out that single line to portray Bose as equivocating on Pakistan. Is this not dishonesty? Without the slightest chance of a doubt, Bose was a fierce nationalist who could never be persuaded to accept partition at no cost unlike politicians and ideologues of that time who did. Had he been there, he would have done all his all to prevent it and very likely succeeded. Tiwari denies uh, that Mujibur Rahman's words conveyed an element of Bose's appeal among Muslims, 
but reproducing that quote from Mujib's biography. When we listen to Subhash Bose addressing us on the radio from Singapore, we used to get excited. It seemed to us that if he managed to land his troops in Bengal, it would be easy for us to oust the English. But then again, it occurred to us that having him in Bengal would not bring us any nearer to Pakistan. And what would happen to the millions of Muslims of the country then? But then again, I thought that someone who could leave everything in his country to spearhead a movement for its independence could never be parochial in his outlook. In my mind, my respect for Subhash Bose continued to grow. Clearly, he saw Bose's appeal among Indians beyond parochial boundaries. Tiwari's disconnect lies in viewing the Hindu Mahasava as the pivot of Hindus. But was it really so? Fact of the matter is, they had absolutely no representation among Hindus. His view of Indian National Congress as anti-national is based on the present-day perceptions, not how the party was regarded at that time. It was very much a nationalist party and also a Hindu representation primarily. And this is clear from Bose's statement, which Tiwari is misrepresenting as anti-Hindu. Hindu Mahasabha has come forward to play a political role and to make a bid for the political leadership of Bengal, or at least of the Hindus of Bengal, who have been the backbone of nationalism in this country. With a real Hindu Mahasabha, we have no quarrel and no conflict. But with a political uh, Hindu Mahasabha, that seeks to replace the Congress in the political life of Bengal and for that purpose has already taken the offensive against us, a fight is inevitable. This fight has just begun. He is clear that Hindu Mahasabha as representatives of Hindu communal interests are acceptable. This was Savarkar's reasoning too, that as long as Muslim League existed, there should be an organization that represented Hindu rights as well. But Bose was clear that this subjective limited viewpoint could not replace or derail the nationalist vision. One quote where he articulates the problem and uh, the task of genuine nation builders. I believe that what is wanted most of all is the will to be one nation and to hold together as one nation when foreign domination ceases. Thus, to my mind, the problem of unity is largely a psychological problem. The people must be educated and drilled to feel that they are one nation. Other factors like uh, language, dress, food, etc. may help unity but cannot create it. How much was Hindu Mahasabha true to their purest ideology, really? The Government of India Act of 1935 ended up having the opposite effect of what it was intended to undermine the Congress's appeal as a national party because Congress ended up winning most provincial councils in the 1937 provincial assembly elections. In 1939, in protest against Viceroy Lord Linlithgow's action of declaring India as a belligerent in the Second World War without consulting the Indian representatives, Congress ministers resigned or were made to resign by the high command. As a result, the provincial governments ceased to exist, much to the joy of the British and the Muslim League. Jinnah exulted 
I wish the Muslims all over India to observe Friday 22nd December as the day of deliverance and thanksgiving as a mark of relief that the Congress regime has at last ceased to function. I hope that the provincial, district and primary Muslim leagues all over India will hold public meetings and pass the resolution with such modification as they may be advised and after Jumma prayers offer prayers by way of thanksgiving for being delivered from the unjust Congress regime. And who supported them at this time? The Hindu Mahasabha. They got together with Muslim League to form governments in Sindh, Northwest Frontier Province and Bengal. They tried to form a government with them in Punjab as well. Then in 1943, the Hindu Mahasabha members joined hands with Sardar Aurangzeb Khan of the Muslim League to form a government in Northwest Frontier Province. And in March 1943, when Sindh government became the first provincial assembly of the subcontinent to pass an official resolution in favor of the creation of Pakistan, Hindu Mahasabha was part of that government and did not think of resigning on matter of principle. So, where was their Hindutva that time? Subhash Bose's above comment that Tiwari selectively quotes to Bose's disadvantage came in the context of similar double dealing by many Bengal Hindu Mahasabha members in the municipal elections. In the same passage, Bose has also referred to nationalist members in Hindu Mahasabha. But did Savarkar and Bose differ significantly in their views? Tiwari brushes away Bose's deep spiritual inclinations and his uh, love for the motherland rooted in his beliefs, saying that they were just personal beliefs. But can you name any other leader who professed such deep faith in the divine? Nehru, Patel, Savarkar, Shamaprasad? I quote Bose's words in a letter written to his mother in 1912-1913 as a tender 15 year old. How much longer shall we sleep? How much longer shall we go on playing with non-essentials? Shall we continue to turn a deaf ear to the wailings of our nation? Our ancient religion is suffering the pangs of near death. Does that not stir our hearts? How long can one sit with folded arms and watch the state of our country and religion? In the summer of 1914, he made of from his home accompanied by a friend for a pilgrimage and to look for a guru that he had been seeking for a long time. He talks of the sacred rivers and the chardhams and the ideals held forth by Shankaracharya, Swami Vivekananda and Aurobindo on Hinduism as the fundamental identity and essence of Indians, uh, he writes. Though geographically, ethnologically and historically India represents an endless diversity to any observer, there is nonetheless a fundamental unity underlying this diversity. The most important cementing factor has been the Hindu religion. North or south, east or west, wherever you may travel, you will find the same religious ideas, the same culture and the same tradition. All Hindus look upon India as the holy land. Everywhere the same scriptures are read and followed and the epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana are equally popular wherever you travel. In Mandalay Jail, he wrote an article on muscular Hinduism 
in which he noted how Christianity and Islam had created empires by converting millions and chalked out plans to separate Hinduism as far as Africa as a crusading proselytizing religion with a zest and influence to match that of Islam and Christianity. He talked about the need to regenerate the Aryan blood. As I wander about the hills, I think about this very often. The sense of power must permeate our entire being, meaning the Hindus. We again have to leap across mountains. It was only when Aryans did such things that they were able to produce the Vedas. How is this different from the view of Navagopal Mitra, who Sarveshtivari holds out as a Hindutva icon? So, concentrating on Hindu communal interests and chalking out the destiny of India as a powerful Hindu nation are two separate aspects. On the former, they had separate perspectives. Bose did not see Savarkar's narrow focus as expedient to his grand design for India. On the latter, his and Savarkar's views were perfectly identical. If it was said that Bose was not a Hindutva icon, that would be acceptable. He was not an ideologue. But it is egregious to claim that he was a Marxist secularist or a Muslim appeaser or anti-Hindu. If one views the happenings at the international arena in that stage of history, it must be said that Indian leaders did have a limited perspective. Following the Versailles Treaty, there was a rising trend of a new paradigm of internationalism, as it was termed, in opposition to the British-American internationalism or the Anglosphere. Today, we chafe about Indian society and values being judged against inapplicable external parameters. We talk in general terms of dharma being incompatible with what is broadly termed as western standards, these being the same as this British American internationalism. It is represented in international organizations like UN, dead yardsticks of human rights, equality, authoritarianism, etc. The Anglo-American model is what created conflict and poverty in third world countries, yet it uh, presumes to be working for the world's benefit. It was these impositions that were challenged by the anti-colonial and anti-imperialistic worldwide movement in the 1930s and 1940s, which unfortunately Indian politicians were largely disconnected from, both the International Congress and those parties with a communal focus. Another international paradigm that existed was of course the communist uh, internationalism. But for obvious reasons and as Bose recognized, this was incompatible with the Indian ethos. Not that one couldn't uh, collaborate with it against imperialism, but it couldn't apply to India. And the Axis also had an uneasy alliance with it, though not strictly against. Japan and Germany were at the head of this wave of alternative internationalism. The Axis powers have been delegitimized not on account of their being in the wrong and the allies being the paragons of humanistic ideals, but simply because they lost. Else, Churchill was no less a genocidal maniac than Hitler. And I don't mean to be a Holocaust denier with this, but he did kill equal number of Bengalis, my own people, as Jews in Germany. 
Hitler's explanation when Bose confronted him on his racist views in Mein Kampf is interesting. He said that he was including the German people among the dominated inferior people who had been enslaved because of their mindset and needed to rise and create a grander destiny for themselves by reimagining themselves as a superior people. We do the same when we talk about Aryan civilization, not reimagine but hark back to it. The essential difference being in the terms race and civilization. Hitler couldn't really talk of a 5000 year old civilization for obvious reasons. But were the Anglo-Americans not racist? They saw the Caucasians as a dominant race against inferior darker people. The Germans simply had a slightly different, somewhat more academic idea of race, even if flawed. Bose's lobbying with the German Foreign Office was effective enough to compel Hitler to explain himself, even if the explanation that he gave may have been more diplomatic than truthful. But contrary to what is portrayed by leftist liberal writers, Hitler did favorably consider the Indian interest and conveyed uh, Germany's clear stand on keeping India united against British machinations. He appreciated only too well the value of a united India, a greater India, because he had seen what had caused Germany's diminution. He was acquainted with the Austrian separatist movement and he eventually did take up Bose's plan of the Nazi forces physical approach towards India. People like Raj Bihari and uh, Subhash Bose conceived an India that was world historical in outlook and influence. In this sense, Bose found Savarkar's worldview limited. This very call given by Savarkar to Hindus to join the British Indian Army. The idea was, as I explained, to have a Hindu community with military training and temper that could uh, correct the deficient proportion of Hindus in the army. But it also shows that he was already thinking in terms of uh, partition. Then this decision to contribute to the British war effort. It was bargaining for limited gains, a dominion status. Since the Indian army was operating in an Anglo-American paradigm, the men were simply pawns. Remember, in return for this help, Indian leaders did not put any clear-cut condition before the British, that of total independence. They were just hoping that the British oblige in return for their help. They did not even insist on limits to the deployment of Indian Army, even when the British were pushed in a narrow and disadvantageous negotiating space. They could have spoken against Indian soldiers being posted anywhere except in territorial uh, defense of India, like the Indian Independence League did. And Subhash Bose, who extracted the promise from the Japanese and uh, Germans respectively, that Indian soldiers would not fight in any battle except the Indian frontier. The Germans, by the way, kept that promise till the end, as also the Japanese, largely. If one reads about the sufferings of these Indian soldiers, so many thousands died without even an opportunity to fight. Many died during transportation in the holds of ships as POWs, caged in unhygienic conditions, succumbed to disease and hunger, officers as well as men. Bemoth Marege, 
When Bose met the POWs that Italy sent to Germany for the first time, they fell at his feet that we had not bargained for this. We wanted to fight for our country. Please get us out of here. And had the promise of being inducted in Indian Legion not been there, their fate would have been much worse. Bose chalked out a greater role for India, one that was not averse to alliances with Western powers, but on our own terms. Unlike the way Indians got pushed into the Allied alliance due to lack of nerve of Indian leaders to negotiate aggressively. The same so-called anti-fascist ideals that they pledged themselves to, where did it leave India? In spite of being on the winning side, that of the Allies, India ended up being carved up by the wily British. And what return has this condemnation of Japan and shedding tears for the Chinese nation brought us? The same China attacked you less than 15 years later and is eating you a bit by bit, even now as we speak. This entire talk of decolonization that we have today is on account of this paradigm of internationalism, which continued after World War II simply since they were triumphant. The reason we are still stuck in it is because the Indian leaders lack vision. अब मैं आपकी बात का जवाब दूं तिवारी जी आपने कहा था ना कि in spite of being deeply Hindu in personal practice one can be anti-Hindu just because Bose had opposed the Mahasabha इसका जवाब है कि in spite of touting Hindutva people can be anti-Hindu and anti-national in perpetuating the evangelist caste discourse appeasement politics creating factions among Hindus being tame pawns of the global Christian empire as the great Hindutva party is doing right now. Those who virulently hate Islamism can also be anti-Hindu. Prime example is Ambedkar, who has been turned into a Hindutva icon today. The Dalitists are no less wild in their hatred towards Hinduism. Then the reformist incorporation, Arya Samaj, they may have been virulently anti-Islam, but they are against Hindu dharma. Janeu for all, Dalits as priests, untouchables for Vedas, ये वही कॉलोनियल आइडियाज हैं हिंदू धर्म नहीं एंड इवन सावरकर वाज अ प्रोपोनेंट ऑफ दिस काइंड ऑफ रिफॉर्मिज्म द सो कॉल्ड हिंदुत्ववादीज कीप फॉर्मेंटिंग रीजनल एनिमोसिटी अटैकिंग द आइकॉन्स ऑफ अदर रीजंस विदाउट अ डिसकंफर्टेड कॉन्शियंस आई कॉल दीस गाइस द राजीव दीक्षित क्लब जिस विचारधारा के तिवारी जी प्रतीक हैं ये बंगाली विद्वेष नेशनल एंथम जॉर्ज फाइव के लिए लिखी गई थी द्वारकानाथ ओपीएम स्मगलर थे राम मोहन रॉय स्टूज थे रविंद्रनाथ टैगोर मुस्लिम कन्वर्ट थे अब तो स्वामी विवेकानंद के विरुद्ध भी शुरू हो गया दिस हिंदू यूनिटी ऑन विच द एंटायर हिंदुत्व आइडियोलॉजी इज प्रेमिस ये एक भूत है जिसकी सब बातें करते हैं मगर देखा कि जीने भी नहीं है अब तक आप बिपिन चंद्रपाल और शरद चंद्र चैटर्जी की बात जरूर कर रहे हैं अपनी अलबाई बनाने के लिए मगर उनके बारे में जानते आप कुछ भी नहीं है Bipin Chandrapal was not an ideologue disconnected uh, from reality. His views on Hinduism and nationalism and communalism were far more nuanced. He talked of liberal communalism, extreme communalism, reactive communalism and competitive communalism and distinguished uh, all these from nationalism. He did not advocate mindless aggression, jeopardizing the nation for short-sighted marginal aims. A constant state of communal contention, like for example what Arya Samaj used to do, 
going and playing music before mosques, which incidentally triggered the 1926 uh, Bengal riots. What is the need of confrontational politics in a delicately poised communal situation and demographic equation? Bose and Chitranjandas were staunchly against Western ideas of progress and regress and their framework of economic and social development. Both talked of ancient models of governance, village level self-determination. Bose has been labelled as authoritarian by British writers, which Sitaram Goel happily buys. So how conducive is Goel's view to the Hindu nation and dharma? How is he any better than any leftist? Thankfully, Goel's diatribe in that uh, letter has been taken care of by Chandrachur Ghosh, so I will not have to go into it. It's a Sirf News article. Sitaram Goel trashed Netaji without studying Subhash Chandra Bose. I'd urge you all to read it. But it is amazing that Goel presumes to stand for Hindu India but repeats all the liberal uh, socialist leftist and imperialist claptrap against Bose. But one quote from Bose, there is much in his Hitler's organization worth studying, but as far as his principles are concerned, I do not see how they can appeal to India. On the economic side, he is more or less in the hands of big capitalists and politically he is pro-British. So Bose was very much aware of this. My general attitude towards European politics is that we should study closely all the latest developments, but at the same time, I firmly believe that India should evolve her own system in the light of her tradition and national requirements. I will earnestly, I earnestly deplore the tendency to reproduce in India the fascist and communist systems blindly. This should put paid to Sitaram Goel's ridiculous governments on both. Actually, Goel is the one knife, not Bose. Bose was not taken in even by those who helped him in the Nazi regime, like Adam von Trott, Wilhelm Kepler, and Franz Futwengler, who had hoped that Bose would be amenable to their liberal worldview, but were disappointed by his skepticism. Bose did not need to profess Hindutva. He was committed to bringing his nation to the greatest heights through the light of her own loftiest spiritual traditions and experience. Now, let me go on to some of the other circumstances which Tiwari uses to advance his bogus stories. He decries Sharad Chandra Bose and Sardul Singh Kavishar for negotiating with the nationalist Muslim political parties for a United Bengal and United Punjab, respectively. First of all, these happened once partition had already been decided undemocratically at that, not before. One has to realize that while partition affected the Hindu nation as a whole, its price was paid only by Punjabis and Bengalis. A greater majority lost their homeland in the wrangling of the political class. Maximum loss of life and property was in those two regions. And I don't have to explain to Hindus the emotion and attachment to the land as mother and the pain of losing the motherland. It is like a permanent wound. Aapke Pradesh ka bantwara ho raha hota, to aap bhi koshish karte ki kisi tarhe matri bhoomi ka vibhajan na ho. Then these negotiations have to be seen in the light of the political movements in these two provinces. 
deeply committed to their shared culture irrespective of religious identity. Clearly a lot of Muslims in these regions did not identify with Muslim League uh, politics. The other question which Indians have to think about in a little more depth and which was the quandary of Hindu leaders at that time. Would we be better off with partition or without? We have in the post-partition era too easily and uncritically accepted the argument of the inevitability of partition. But has disseverance served us, the Hindus, as a civilization, as a nation, a demography or regional community and culture? The answer to all of these is no. We have, and I speak here only of Hindus and Hinduism, lost on all counts. Neither have we retained our geographical integrity. The Hindutva smokers can keep pasting Akhand Bharat pictures on their profiles. But fact is that these areas are permanently alienated from us and the Hindu civilization. The only gain is for Islam because we tamely handed over huge chunks of our land added to Darul Islam. It is silly and wild to say that keeping Bengal or Punjab together was a greater folly than handing over large portions of our ancient tracts of these provinces to Pakistan with their Hindu populations, which is what Congress and the Mahasabha agreed to. Partition was the original act of appeasement, the most colossal societal case of appeasement, and ironically which even the greater majority of Muslims did not want. Who did it benefit? Hindus to bhool jaye. Did it benefit the Balochis, the Sindhis, Northwest frontier people? They faced the cruelest persecution in Pakistan, just like the Hindus. Can we forget Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan's pained plea to Gandhi that you are throwing us to the wolves? The only people who wanted partition was a small clique in political circles. And let's please not bring in that oft-cited 1946 plebiscite in which most Muslims voted for Pakistan and partition. Even in this vote, records of the Home Department show that only 16% of the Muslims had actually voted and almost all elites. And demographically, has the bane of Islam gone away? It is looming over us all over again. And this is not because of Congress policy or secularism. This is the nature of the beast. We are close to the pre-partition demographics again, if we ignore official figures. And we have added many more hostile groups, owing to minoritism, which the great Hindutva beacons are carrying on with unprecedented elan and enthusiasm. Now I ask, if Kashmir could be retained as an autonomous unit with 90% Muslim population, why could Bengal and Punjab not be kept together? There, the local leaders had agreed to keep the regions together, unlike in Jammu and Kashmir, where they wanted to accede to Pakistan. In Bengal and Punjab, Hindus were close to 50%. No wonder Nehru had taunted uh, Shama Prasad Mukherjee with the words, you partitioned Bengal. The same Bengal which four decades ago, people could not dream of partitioning. Mukherjee shot back, uh, saying at the time that you divided India. But that said, his belief that sovereign Bengal would be a virtual Pakistan, Muslims will be dominant politically, was just that, a belief. 
Mahasabha did not have popular representation in these provinces. What business did Mukherjee have to take the decision in favor of partition on behalf of Bengali Hindus? If the argument is that many Hindus would have died, well, millions were killed in the partition. No riot, not even continuous riots could have brought on this scale of death and devastation. And which Hindu Bengalis did uh, Mukherjee say? The million odd killed in the partition or the three million genocide victims of Bangladesh for? To whose good care did he leave the 12 million Bengali Hindus trapped in East Pakistan? Why was Chittagong ceded to Pakistan? So it was just that, a deal, pairing of the land like a cake according to convenience by a few people against the better instincts of the community as a whole for securing political aims. I find it an utterly cowardly outlook to say that in the autonomous regions, Hindus in Punjab and Bengal would not have been able to hold their own to resist and survive. Let's take the example of the Swadin Bang Bhumi Andolan and the Bang Sena. These were armed independence movements in Bangladesh to secure a separate uh, Hindu land. The movement was so fierce that Bangladesh could not control them and would very likely have been broken into three halves, the greater uh, part going to Hindus. You think the same people who are fighting with 12 to 18 percent Hindus would not be able to resist with a 45 percent Hindu population? And do you know with whose help Bangladesh brutally put down these Hindu Bengalis fighting for their existence? The great Hindutva gods, Gandhi number 2, Atal Bihari Vajpayee. So, what do you ki baat karte hain aap? If at all the Hindu community has been weakened, fractured and diminished on both sides of the border, they would have been in a much better position to resist had they been together. Actually, even the enlightened strain among Muslims, Muslim patriotism has been weakened on both sides. If partition strengthened anything, it was Islamism. You think Sikh and Hindu Punjabis together would not have been able to put up a resistance in independent Punjab? What's more, the entire Sikh separatist issue would not have arisen. What is the status of Hindu Punjabis today? They are powerless in their own land of no reckoning electorally. And did India save Hindus? Did the Indian government do anything for Hindus in Punjab, in Bengal? They did not even allow the Hindus trapped in these lands to escape to India. And please, no political statements. Hindutva party also did not. We know the condition of Hindu immigrants in Assam camps, the enumeration fraud on them. And those from the Punjab side, languishing in poverty under tarpaulins and mud huts. The Afghan refugees have been resettled in Delhi suburbs. A modern camp has been built for the Rohingyas. What has your Hindutva done for refugee Hindus from Bangladesh and Pakistan? The hostility they face from Hindu Assamese. They regard Muslim Assamese as their brothers and are hostile towards Bengali Hindus. Make no mistake, it is not Bangladeshis. It is Bengalis as an ethnicity that they resent. Leave now, even earlier. During the Bengal famine, when millions were dying of hunger and want, your Marwadi businessmen, they were hoarding grain, 
withholding food from desperately needy fellow Hindus. These are the things which should bother the conscience of the Hindutva touters, rather than attacking a staunch nationalist for his earnest efforts to keep his country together, strong and united. As for the threat of Islamism, it is there and it will continue. Please don't be under the illusion that by marking out a boundary, you have saved yourself. Not just in Bengal, but all of India. Even today, per day violence against Hindus by Muslims is higher in UP and some other regions than in Bengal. Every year, Hindu people, congregations, properties, religious processions are attacked by Muslim goons at various parts of the country. Every other day, people are killed in Haryana by cow smuggling mafia. Aapke saamne do ladkiyon ko jaan se maha daala. Kya kar liya aapne? In spite of all the hurly-burly of Jatland, Muslims are barely 7 to 8% in Haryana. And same is the case with rest of India. Ovaisi chhati thok ke hindoon ka katlea machane ki baat karta hai. Kya kar paayen aap uske khilaat? Aap ya aapka chapan inch ka hindutva? Are you very secure that these same Muslims won't go the Muslim league way? Jinnah, Surawardi, Muhammad Ali, they were all educated lawyers like uh, the OSCs. So, man up and be prepared for a continuous fight until Islam is eradicated. Because you have to keep up with their notion of continuous struggle, of continuous jihad. Don't be lulled into complacence thinking you are safe after carving up a separate Hindu majority territory. A small group of Hindus hold power here, but the Hindu community is as disempowered and vulnerable as it was in pre-partition India or would have been in uh, uh, United Bengal or United Punjab. Demographically speaking, we are back to square one. That time too, the population of Muslims varied from district to district and it is still so. There are thousands of Pakistanis inside India where Hindus live in fear. So quit being smug that you saved anything by partitioning India. The problem with Hindutva sloganeers is that they solve no problems for the Hindus. They just do political posturing. Another one of Sarvesh Tiwari's claims that the leaping tiger emblem of INA is taken from Tipu Sultan's tiger. Now, that's the bunk circulated by a whole lot of leftist secularist writers. But I see Tiwari eagerly borrows it and perpetuates it because his intention is to run down both. Doesn't matter how trustworthy the source of the claim. I cannot recollect a single foggiest reference from Bose to Tipu Sultan, leave alone in admiring tones. Anyone who takes a frank look at the two tiger emblems would say they look patently different. Tipu's tiger is in a crouching position, holding on to a kill, and the INA tiger is shown in a springing motion. If at all it looks like Tipu's tiger, it's because, well, a tiger looks like a tiger. But I wonder why these people didn't think it looks like the leaping tiger of the Chol kings, for example. Bose had a huge number of Tamilians in his army. It is acknowledged uh, that the DMK ranks at the stage of inception were built with ex-INA members. And tiger is an abiding symbol in Tamil culture. It is the emblem of the present World Tamil Confederation as well as the Tamil Elam. Why? It could be symbolic of the Bengal tiger, 
that would have been a much better correlation. There is even a tiger deity in Bengal. Anyways, the tiger emblem of INA comes from the emblem of the Indische Legion, which in turn was adopted owing to a simple association with India itself. It was known as Tiger Legion by the Germans, which means Tiger Legion. The name derives in fact from a German wartime operation consisting of a wide network of undercover agencies working in Afghanistan and uh, India border in 1940 till 1942, which went by the code name Operation Tiger or Unternehmen Tiger, meaning Operation Tiger, which was meant to plant saboteurs targeting British bases a network of spies and subversionists and to arm tribal groups and incite rebellion against British establishments. The orbs were meant to be spread in India and included the German foreign officers contact with Subhash Bose, which incidentally they kept secret uh, from the Italians. And Bose's interaction with the Fakir of EP had been in the course of this German operation. It was a prelude to the Eastward thrust of the Germans, which came to be concretized later as Operation Barbarossa, with the longer term end of taking over Russia and then moving via Afghanistan towards the Indian frontier to make an end of the British Empire, in Hitler's words. The setting up of an Indian Legion coincided with this operational plan. It was envisaged initially as a pathfinder unit for the Caucasian campaign of the Germans. This was in the original plan that Subhash Post discussed with Walter Habish. About a hundred Indians had already been trained for special operations under the scheme, which after the meeting got converted into a regular armed infantry unit. The name Tiger was therefore retained from the operation it was born of. Incidentally, in this operation, it was a Hindu by name Bhagat Ram Talwar working as a double agent for the British who constantly did Bose in and almost succeeded in having him assassinated. Bose's confidant in Kabul, Rehmat Khan, who bore messages from him to a forward block and his brother in India also had the nickname Tiger. He was part of an information network run by Bose known as Organization Masota or Stab Matsuta in the German papers, in consonance with the German operations. The password for Bose's agents for this operation was Bengal Tiger. So that's where your Springing Tiger of INA comes from, not from Tipu Sultan. Mm -mm. Incidentally, Alexander Wath, who along with Adam von Trott had been appointed by the German Foreign Office to constantly be at Bose's side calls Bose the Tiger Indians, the Tiger of India, in Bose's biography authored by him. Tipu Sultan, matlab kuch bhi. So, le de ke ab ye Hindi wala vyog rahe ga aapka. So, aisa hai Tiwari ji, mein samajhti hoon ki aapko bhoat moh hai apne matri bhaasha se, magar thoda Hindi bhaasha ka itihaas agar aapne pada hota, to ye shikayat bhi नहीं रहती आपको स्वर्गीय श्री बोस से 
और शिकायत शब्द के प्रयोग से शिकायत मत कीजिएगा क्योंकि यूपी सरकार के शिकायत विभाग में भी शिकायत के लिए शिकायत शब्द लिखा हुआ है टू बिगिन हिंदी दी शुद्ध हिंदी डियर टू अ लॉर्ड ऑफ हिंदी भाषा प्रोपोनेंस इज बेयरली वन सेंचुरी ओल्ड और वन एंड हाफ एट मोस्ट इट एग्जिस्टेड एज खड़ी बोली स्पोकन इन राजस्थान पंजाब डेली रीजन यूपी बिहार एंड बंगाल इन दी वैष्णव रीजन ब्रजीज स्पोकन बेसिकली दी नदर्न बेल्ट फ्रॉम वेस्ट टू ईस्ट बट नॉट एज दी प्रेजेंट संस्कृतायज स्टाइल ऑफ स्टैंडर्ड हिंदी अपार्ट फ्रॉम दिस देर वर अ होल लॉर्ड ऑफ संस्कृतायज डायलैक्ट्स रजी मैथिली मेनी बेंगोली राइटर्स यूज टू राइट इन मैथिली टैगोर ऑल्सो कंपोज इन मैथिली देन अवधि राजस्थानी भोजपुरी बघेली कन्नौजी एंड देवनगरी स्क्रिप्ट वॉज यूज फॉर ऑल ऑफ दैम एक्सेप्ट पंजाबी विच इज ऑल्सो बेसिकली अ डायलेक्ट ऑफ हिंदी बट हैड एन एडिशनल स्क्रिप्ट गुरमुखी एंड ऑल ऑफ दीज हैड अ लिटरेरी ट्रेडिशन बट दे वर डेफिनेटली नॉट इन यूज फॉर एनी फॉर्मल ऑफिशियल लीगल और एकेडेमिक पर्पज फॉर दोज पर्शन वॉज यूज खड़ी बोली वॉज कॉल्ड बाई द मुस्लिम्स हिंदुई और हिंदी और हिंदुस्तानी फ्रॉम विच दी उर्दू लिटरेरी ट्रेडिशन अरोज एज डिस्टिंग्विश फ्रॉम ब्रजी एंड अवधि एंड मुस्लिम राइटर्स ऑल्सो यूज टू राइट इन ब्रजी एंड अवधि एज डिद हिंदूज इन हिंदुस्तानी बट इन अरबिक स्क्रिप्ट विच बेसिकली वॉज उर्दू सो दर फैक्ट इज हिंदुस्तानी इज इक्वल टू हिंदी इज इक्वल टू उर्दू वेदर यू लाइक इट और नॉट नथिंग एक्सेप्ट दोकेबुलरी डिस्टिंग्विशेज दैम a greater mix of casual arabic words in urdu and more of sanskrit origin words in hindi and both up till the 19th century had the status of colloquial tongues only the devil was in the script and the devil was born where else in bengal in early 19th century since hindustani was the lingua franca used in courts and for the conduct of commerce in east india company colonies at that time primarily the bengal bihar province it was imperative for company officials to learn it but for formal instruction linguists realized the need to make the language less dependent on peshwa arabic vocabulary and to bring it closer to the local eastern dialects especially braji which was more prevalent in bengal it would therefore also have to be in devnagari script so the first attempt to weed out the Persian Arabic words from Hindustani or Khadi Boli and put together a lexicon of Sanskritized Hindustani was made by pundits appointed by Dr John Gilchrist at Fort William College in Kolkata but we still don't have as yet the standard Hindi in literary tradition it largely borrowed from Braji and had no tradition in prose until then The first ever work in Hindi was a translation of the Bhagavad Puran into Hindustani bereft of any Arabic Persian words by Lalu Jilal he is one of the first exponents uh, of Hindi he was from Gujarat it continued to be referred to as Khadi Boli for some time but subsequently came to be named Hindi and it was not spoken and read only by a few a small group that subscribed to publications produced by a handful of printing presses in kolkata branches in the northern province 
present day UP open later. Thereafter, Hindi was in limbo for quite some time, especially after the introduction of Western education. In uh, northern provinces, it was read only by those who were into poetry appreciation and an even smaller section among them actually, since most still prefer poetry in Raji. But to whatever extent, Hindi remained within a limited circle with literary interests. Its existential crisis came with the decision of the East India Company in 1837 to replace Persian as bureaucratic language with local vernacular which meant for greater part of northern India, Urdu. This was when the bongs came in. In Bengal, Bangla easily attained the status of official language in 1837, since it was already a well-established language. But as significant number of Bengalis moved westwards in the course of government service and settled in parts of Bihar and northern province, they noticed a reversal of status. Whilst in Bengal, the elite and educated, the politically and socially empowered with overwhelming representation in government service were the Bengali Hindus. In northern province, their Hindu brethren were secondary in the social order and the Urdu speaking Muslims were the elites. The main cause for this was the primacy of Urdu and the Peshwa Arabic script as also the absence of a standardized language of the Hindus who were viewed as rustic and uncultured. So the move to introduce vernacular as official and educational medium acquired a communal dimension here as the vast majority of Hindus who wrote in Nagari were at a disadvantage. This is how the fate of Hindi language came to be associated with Hindu interests and Hindu nationality. To salvage the situation, the Hindi movement was started in the late 1860s, which in the northern province was born out of scores of uh, literary associations and groups of which most were dominated by the Urdu proponents, but a small number who were also those who understood the need to bring up Hindi. Prominent Hindus started writing petitions and tracts addressed to the government to have Nagari recognized as the written form of Hindustani. The most prominent of these uh, were Allahabad Institute and Banaras Institute, which were dominated by expatriate Bengalis. Interestingly, the people who stood in opposition to this were the UP caste community, who along with Kashmiri Brahmins and Muslims formed the main strength of the bureaucratic or clerical tribe. They were known as Amala class. They were comfortable with Urdu and thereby had a common cause with the Muslims. Many Hindus also wrote Hindustani in the Peshwa Arabic character. Daya Shankar Kaul, Brijnarayan Chakbast, Bismil, uh, Ram Prasad Bismil were some of the known Hindu Urdu writers. Even Harish Chandra produced a sizable body of Urdu verse and Raja Shiv Prasad who had been in the Northwest uh, education department continued to write in Urdu even though both favored Hindi or Devnagari for purposes of representation. Premchand also was mostly an Urdu writer who switched to Hindi later due to its growing circulation in the latter period, but he kept vacillating between the two. But parallelly, 
divergence uh, was being affected as Hindi slowly started acquiring distinct character with Peshwa Arabic vocabulary gradually discarded in favor of Sanskrit origin words. But the biggest problem in Hindi was Gadya Ka Vav. Gadya Ka Koi Swaroop Tattak Nahi Tha, Standard Grammar and Syntax, which are necessary for composing prose. To overcome this deficiency, translations of Bengali works were made to lay the foundation of Hindi prose and over time used to produce the sizable body of literature to give Hindi the stature of a standard language. A pioneer of the Hindi movement and prose was Bhudev Mukhopadhyay, who first started the quest to have Devnagri established as official script in Bihar. That's where the Hindi movement began. He himself wrote in Hindi and did translations from Bengali, followed by Radhika Prashunno Mukherjee, Novin Chandra Rai, and Harish Chandra. Ye jo का नाम बड़े गर्व से चुपकाए रखते हैं तिवारी जी अपने प्रोफाइल पे ये भी इसी बंगाली ग्रुप के थे ही न्यू बंगला वेल हिज फैमिली रूट्स पर इन बंगाल फॉर सेंचुरीज इनकी जमींदारी थी इस बंगाल में चंदननगर और मुर्शिदाबाद ही हिमसेल्फ यूज्ड टू डू ट्रांसलेशंस फ्रॉम बंगला टू हिंदी until 1930s सिग्निफिकेंट नंबर ऑफ दीस हिंदी पीरियोडिकल्स एंड लिटरेचर वर प्रोड्यूस्ड फ्रॉम कोलकाता a lot of the initial literature has been produced by Brahmo Samaj Press. Ye jinko Hindi bhashi aajkal stooge kehte hain. Pata kakh na ho unke baare mein. In 1898, the Nagari petition was put up to Lieutenant General MacDonald of Northwestern Province to have Nagari script recognized for official script, which was finally accepted with the Nagari resolution that permitted the use of Nagari in courts, though in limited measure. When? In 1900. In Bihar, it was recognized about a decade earlier in 1880 due to the energetic efforts of Bhudar Mukhopadhyay and Radhika Pushurno Mukherjee. But until 1900, there is no official Hindi and the recognized Hindi is still the same as Hindustani for all common purposes except the uh, distinction in script. Some of the prominent figures of the Hindi movement were Raja Shiv Prasad, Umesh Chandra Sanyal, Dinanath Ganguly, Harish Chandra Garwal, Bharat Hindu, Jinko Kajatahe, Lakshmi Singh, Raja Jay Kishandas, Rajendralad Mitro, Bangim Chandra Chattopadhyay, and many others. Babu Novin Chandurai of Roma Samaj and uh, Keshav Chandra Sen through Pratna Samaj were mainly instrumental in the spread of this purified uh, Hindi language to other regions and through Arya Samaj who they urged to promote the cause of uh, Hindi alongside Sanskrit in the Gujarat Punjab regions. So Bengalis don't really have any antagonism towards Hindi. There is no cause for it. They were chiefly the force behind its growth and spread. But leaving their own pure Sanskritized language, there is no reason for Bengalis to accord precedence to. Hindi. This is the same with some other regional tongues which have far superior, richer and ancient language and literary traditions. Now the reason for narrating this entire history is to understand a few things about the status of Hindi until the 1930s. Fact is, Hindi was not established as an official language. Its script was not established. 
In 1928, the Nehru report proposed to have Hindustani as the national language of India, written both in Devnagari and Arabic scripts. So even until this time, the struggle to establish Nagari as a script for Hindi was going on. Secondly, Shuddha Hindi was not spoken anywhere. The people spoke Hindustani only. We still speak uh, Hindustani. Fact is, Hindi is a devised language for formal use. Tabi zaman pe charti nahi. Unlike Bangla, where even in natural speech, tatsam words flow fluently because it grew naturally. In ordinary interaction, you cannot speak Shuddha Hindi without sounding foppish. The same is true for Urdu, heavily infused with the Peshwa Arabic loan words, the kind that Pakistanis use these days for formal purposes. But this divergence was imperceptible in those days. The question was only which script will be admissible for it. And maybe after a lapse of a century, high Hindi does become the common medium of speech, but at that time it wasn't. Then Hindi was not standardized. The official terminology and phraseology was absent. The language for formal communication was not laid down. Hindi grammar was standardized in 1954. In case of Bangla, this happened over 100 years ago, in the beginning of the 19th century. Even Hindi orthography was standardized post-independence. But the script to do, likhne mein sahi spelling kya hoge, uska tathik nahi tha. Aur aap kehte hain, Azad Hind government ki formal communication Devnagari mein honi chahiye thi. कितने लोग समझ पाते कितने लोग पढ़ पाते वो और क्या हवा में बातें करते then this obsession with purity of Hindi Subhash Bose was not on a linguistic enterprise that time in the middle of a world war his primary concern was first capturing a piece of land which was imperative for inception of an independent government leaving all this he should have concerned himself with inanities like Hindi versus Hindustani contention something that politicians could not resolve after decades of disputes, debates, discussions and petitions. He had nothing better to do. In this case, he had to focus on the Hindi of Hindi. He had to focus on the Hindi of Hindi. He had to focus on the Hindi of Hindi. What kind of pathetic, puny mentality is this that cannot appreciate any circumstance, any constraint except their own petty rouses. Tiwari complains that Bose himself did not know Hindi at this time. Strange as would seem for a cosmopolitan and well-traveled Bengali as he was, a forward block comrade of his later recalled how Bose engaged later that year a tutor in Kolkata to teach him Hindi or Hindustani, who later complained that his pupil was too lazy to sit down and learn Hindi, although he did learn enough to make speeches. Well, Bose did not need to learn Hindi or Hindustani any more than necessary for communication. You may wax eloquent on the benefits and charms of Shuddha Hindi, but it is just a linguist's indulgence at most. And this is the problem of language fanatics on both ends of the spectrum. Urdu chauvinists also have this stand. They considered Hindustani Gandhi Zuban and insisted on the use of heavily passionized Urdu. But fact is, 
Sanskritized Hindi and Persianized Urdu are both artificial constructs and they both sound pretentious. Both were used for giving the airs of the better educated. For the greater part of the subcontinent, only Hindustani is the natural medium of communication and expression. So, Bose is unfortunately for you not wrong when he says that the distinction between Hindi and Urdu is an artificial one. Now, you can see the difference between Hindi and Urdu. But for the Hindi, Hindi is not a Hindi. संपर्क के माध्यम के सिवा और कुछ नहीं है और इस प्रयोजन के लिए हिंदी हिंदुस्तानी ही है क्योंकि वही उसका स्वाभाविक स्वरूप है आधिकारिक प्रयोग के बाहर हिस्टोरियन आलोक राय डिस्क्राइब्स द मेंटल स्टेट ऑफ सच पीपल एज तिवारी इन द फॉलोइंग वर्ड्स अनलाइक हिज बंगाली कंपैट्रियट्स द हिंदी रिफॉर्मर एंड एक्टिविस्ट इन द नॉर्थ वेस्ट प्रोविंस had to wrest his language from an entrenched class of people who were at least then his social superiors. Thus, the making of Hindi from Hindustani had an element of social disadvantage and resentment built into its foundations, which imparts an enduring anxiety to that invention, Shuddha Hindi. There are good historical reasons why the Hindiwala is quick to take offence and is forever burdened with the suspicion that he is hard done by and not given due consideration by those whose opinion he is too insecure to disregard. Kuch aise hi sikhti hai Tiwari ji ki. There is another thing which one has to understand from this background. Language uh, as primary contributor to communal politics is unique only to this region, the Hindi belt. Consequently, this Alarm bell association with purity of Hindi and Urdu, which if diluted compromises the very basis on which communal interests stand. But this is irrelevant for rest of India. Purity of Hindi as indication of Hinduness is a limited regional concern. For example, in Bengal, the purest Sanskritized Bangla is spoken by both Muslims and Hindus. For Muslim Bengalis, Bangla is indispensable and an inelectable component of their identity. They are as passionately attached to Bangla as any Hindu Bengali. In the middle of the heat of the 1926 riots, some Muslim groups from outside Bengal had tried to insert the Urdu for Muslims versus Bangla for Hindus rift. But it was the Bengali Muslims who vehemently turned it down. No Muslim group ever dared bring up the language issue again in Bengal politics. That's why there was the Bengali language movement in Pakistan in 1948. Bangla was patronized by Muslim sultans as much as the local Hindu potentates of Bengal since medieval times. Sadhu Bhasha, the archaic heavily Sanskritized Bangla was used by both Hindu and Muslim writers. The latest and uh, last exponent of Sadhu Bhasha is a Muslim, uh, Bangladeshi, Dr. Salimullah Khan. To put it simply, a radical Bengali Muslim can pronounce jihad upon kafirs in pure Sanskritized Bangla. So, language has no relation to Hinduness in, for Bengalis and most of India. That's a Hindi belt peculiarity. So, Subhash Bose choosing Hindustani for INA did not make him a lesser Hindu. It was just a decision to ease communication. 
since it was the lingua franca. What was understood was used. It was not meant to establish the official status of a language or its script. Same applies to the adoption of the national anthem. First of all, the reason for adopting Jan Ganaman instead of Vande Mataram is because of the historical background that they were composed in. Vande Mataram was a part of the novel Anandmat by Bangyam Chandra Chattopadhyay, as we all know. It was written in the background of overthrow of Muslim rule in Bengal and welcomes the British as saviors. This view is seen in many of the early nationalists like uh, Ram Mohan Roy, Bangim Chandra, Madan Mohan Malviya, etc. But this context had lost its meaning in the subsequent nationalist movements as Indians slowly realized the kind of extremely exploitative and rapacious nature of British rule, more debilitating than any previous Islamic rule had been, completely stripping the land of all resources and giving it nothing in return, a veritable drain. So much so, Indians did not have sufficient even to eat or cover their backs. Even cloth used to be rationed in those days. So the later nationalists started understanding a need for Muslims and Hindus to cooperate rather than contend and focus on throwing off the British clinging like vampires to India. It is not that leaders did not realize the predatory nature of Islam, but they prioritized independence. For this purpose, Janganman was more conducive. And the separatist Muslims, by the way, had a problem with Janganman also. Now, considering the anthem for the purposes of Aine, Vande Mataram was a revolutionary slogan. It would be somewhat inappropriate for an organized army. The emotion, passion and fury of a revolutionary is incompatible with the military, the primary quality of which is discipline. Moreover, there is too much of onus on Subhash Bose as being behind every tiny decision of INA. In reality, he did not look into uh, nitty-gritties at all. He himself did not know Hindi well. He used the help of his translator, Abid Hasan Safrani, who was a devoted nationalist, by the way. Prem Sehgal testified that he did not as much as look at what uh, he signed uh, when he gave both the dispatches. It was his job as military secretary to apply guidelines, recommend who should be what and have the appointments published in official military gazettes. Bose simply did not have enough people in his cabinet. As Peter Ward Fay puts it, that he was obliged to be his own prime minister, his own minister for war, his own minister for foreign affairs and to consign the three remaining ministries in his modest cabinet to an army doctor meaning A.C. Chatterjee, a journalist, Anand Mohan Sahai, and a female obstetrician not yet 30 years of age. That was uh, Lakshmi Swaminathan, Lakshmi Sahai. It was Anand Mohan Sahai who, as military secretary of Azadhan Sarkar, had tasked Major Abid Hassan and Mumtaz Hussain with the task of translation of Janaganaman. The music was composed by Captain Ram Singh Thakuri, who also composed the tune for Kadam Kadam Bahaya It was not picked up from Sikandar Yazan. Sorry, Sitaram Goyalji. Also, if one looks at the translation, there are barely five words of Peshwar Arabic origin in Subhshub Chand. 
the entire composition is in Hindi. It can't be called a literary classic, unlike the original, but it was done by army men, not great literatures. The idea behind commissioning the translation was to simply make it easily comprehensible. The original was composed in abstruse Sadhu Varsha. This is the reason this entire nonsense started about Janagarman being composed in honor of George V because it is not understood by most people. In fact, this is a favorite kitsch among the Hindi Veltis circulated and consumed eagerly. So, what is Sarvesh Tiwari even talking about? Also, the Azad Hind radio broadcasts were in all languages, apart from English in Bengali, Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam, Gujarati, Marathi, Punjabi, Gurkhali, Pashto and Hindustani. During Bose's tour of the Andamans as the Supreme Commander of Azad Hind Forge in September 1943, he got thousands of copies of the Tamil version of Savarkar's Indian War of Independence of 1857 printed and distributed among the public. So, his use of language was entirely utility based. Tiwari complains about the motto of Azad Hind Forge being in Urdu. But he does not mention that these were present on the insignias in all three languages. In Hindi, it read Ekta Vishwas Balidan. In Urdu, Ittifaq, Udmat, Kurbani. And in English, Unit, Faith and Sacrifice. The term Jai Hind had been coined during the formation of the Indian Legion by a Hindu, Champakaraman Pillai, not an Urdu advocate. Then the titles for the battle honours. They appear to have been invented from the word Tamgha, which means a medal. The Hindi word Padak was not coined, it was not known. One would have to delve in Sanskrit to figure out the Hindi word for a medal. And they were not linguists. Hindus called a medal a medal. So what Medali Hind, Medali Bharat. अच्छा इन्हें VSM, AVSM, PVSM से कोई आपत्ति नहीं है विशिष्ट सेवा मेडल अति विशिष्ट सेवा मेडल परम विशिष्ट सेवा मेडल मतलब मेडल शब्द से प्रॉब्लम नहीं है सारी प्रॉब्लम तमगा शब्द से है क्यों दोनों ही तो फॉरेन ओरिजिन शब्द हैं जस्ट बिकॉज़ तिवारीज सेंस ऑफ प्रायोरिटी इज ऑफ किल्टर ऑब्सेसिंग ओवर हिंदी डजंट मीन इट वुड बी द सेम फॉर बोथ ही हैड द नेशंस इंडिपेंडेंस टू थिंक ऑफ लाइफ्स ऑफ मेन वर एट स्टेक he had to think of ways to keep them motivated and to keep his army from floundering. Hindi ke biche jagmari ka time nahi tha unke paas. So, at long last, let us come back to the topic of the military, Indian National Army and desertions. Irrespective how we parse the causes of desertions, and the causes are many, a variety of personal and psychological factors. But they boil down to three basic factors. Breakdown of discipline, deficient regimental cohesiveness, which may be because of fresh recruits who have not been drilled long enough into the regimental order, or a new commanding officer who has not had the time to build a close association and rapport to inspire trust among the men, and lack or loss of motivation. If one regards the INA desertions carefully, Behind all myriad motives, it was basically one or a combination of these uh, three factors at play. This is 
line from Colonel Prem Sahib's memoirs, which uh, Tiwari quotes, that part of the reason that some Muslim soldiers may have been inclined to desert was on account of Turkey's alignment along the anti-Axis powers. Turkey's alignment alongside the anti-Axis powers has had a very adverse effect on certain Muslim officers. In spite of our efforts to explain to them the circumstances under which Turkey has been forced to join the war, the officers feel that by fighting against powers that are allied with the Turks, they are being disloyal to Islam. Which side Turkey would join may have been playing on the minds of some Muslim soldiers, but that by itself is unlikely to have been a big factor. Since Turkey entered the war only in February 1945, and by July 1944, INA was already in retreat on all the fronts, Impal, Burma, Koima. The morale of the INA men was rock bottom by then, and they saw desertions in droves. Moreover, it is important to know that many of the soldiers of INA did not in the first place join INA out of reasons of patriotism or the appeal of the call of freedom. Fact is that a great many POWs are joined simply to escape the hardships and privations of captivity or because they had been coerced in some manner, threatened with dire straits or in cases where regimental loyalty was weak. It is suggested that some may have even joined for self-advancement as they got promoted several rungs in rank. But in reality, there were fewer committed volunteers who had joined for a genuine zeal uh, for the armed struggle for independence. Many did join purely out of patriotic motives, others who were inspired by the persona and uh, leadership of both, but it cannot be said with certainty if they comprise the majority. A large number of officers, VCOs, you know, Viceroy's commissioned officers and other ranks actually remained loyal to their oath and even suffered horrible consequences. Sent to work on the Siam Burma Railway, which came to be known as Death Railway. Many were transported to Malaya and left to die without food or resources, abandoned to harsh tropical weather and disease. Whether the Japanese shot them or ate them, as some horrifying tales narrate, and a word of caution is too here. British accounts greatly exaggerated these, adding phony, unverifiable details to increase shock value with certain intention, which however may not be true. But refusing to renege on their oath to the king and not joining INA was a tough choice, which uh, the more seasoned and steadfast uh, soldiers seem to have stuck to. In particular, those uh, from regiments where officers and VCOs had uh, remained together over longer time, keeping the regimental bond intact. And it was not that the Japanese did not realize this. Therefore, resistant officers and VCOs were put in an officer's separation camp to talk them into joining with the hope that other ranks would follow. In cases where the Indian officers and VCOs remained steady, the rank and file followed their example, no matter what fate it brought them. And this number was not insignificant, it was almost around 11,000 or so. As I explained earlier, often this had more to do with the character of a soldier and the nature of the army itself than strictly loyalty to the British. 
It was to an extent also result of uncertainty over the outcome of the war itself. They did not really believe Japan would win it. After taking the oath of allegiance, men would not be inclined to frequently reappraise their commitment to their army against personal considerations at each new prospect, unless forced in a situation to do so, which is what happened in case of Segal, Shanavas, and Helong. The Baloch regiment, which was Prem Segal's regiment, was comprised of Punjabi Muslims, Pathans and Dogras. Of these, Punjabi Muslims had a strong loyalty to the British and were reluctant to join. So, though the Dogras and Pathans wanted to join, they would not because they did not want to leave their Punjabi Muslim brothers behind. So, regimental loyalty is a very important factor in preserving esprit de corps of a military force. This feeling is relatively weak in fresh recruits. Fresh recruits learn to school their emotions over time, tempered through strict discipline until this becomes second nature, where emotions do not interfere with set action. Therefore, military is also a dharm, a unique mental and physical makeup and a community in itself. In the Sikh mutiny of June 1984, it was found in the course of investigations that almost all the deserters were raw recruits. Subsequently, a greater proportion of the mutineers were pardoned after serving minor sentences, though not taken back in service. Only a few faced harsh sentences and a handful were also reinstated. The British Indian Army in World War II was literally a freshman army, owing to the manifold increase in its numbers from 189,000 in the pre-war period to 2.3 million during the war. From December 1932 to May 1941, the number of Indian officers passing out of IMA was 524, and this number had gone up to 9,540 by the end of the war because training for officers was reduced from two and a half years to a six months term of emergency commission. For men, this period was even shorter. Some of them found themselves thrust into the battle scene after barely a couple of months long training. They were little more than peasants in uniform, still ruled by their prejudices and passions. There was a lot of regimental displacement due to reshuffling, Officers and men transferred to and from different regiments just before deployment, which eroded their regimental bond. There was discrimination and ill-feeling between British and Indian officers. The mass surrender of British and Indian officers had been a bewildering experience for the men and for the Indian officers, as Shanavas recounted later, a humiliating feeling uh, being handed over like cattle to the Japanese. Captain Shanavas had barely five to six years military experience behind him, and Captain Prem Kumar Sagar had just two. Lieutenant Gurbat Singh Dillon had risen from the ranks and had barely two years experience as an officer, which was marked with resentment on account of discrimination and hostility from British officers. He complained about despondence on account of lack of discipline and flagging morale among the ranks. Shanavas had been transferred to 14th Punjab just before the war. They were the first uh, 
three of the two dozen picked for court martial proceedings. There being Hindu Muslim Sikh was purely coincidental. And Congress touted them as mascots of their favorite Hindu Muslim Bhaichara front. This was not on account of any selection policy of INA, which had the constraint of availability and ability. A somewhat similar situation had prevailed in the 5th Light Infantry, which mutinied in 1915 in uh, Singapore, an example which Tiwari has also cited. They had a weak and discordant leadership at the level of officers and two hostile factions within the ranks. And there were also other reasons for discontent. Suspicion was rife. Such a unit will see desertions at the very first occasion. It is not so much the immediate reasons behind mutiny, which in this case was said to be rumors of being sent to Europe to fight the Ottoman Empire against their Muslim co-religionists, but an environment where such personal motives come in play, and that is breach of discipline. A contrasting case was in the Mesopotamian theatre, especially Gelibolu and North Africa during World War I where the Turks met British expeditionary forces consisting of mainly Muslim Indian soldiers, hardened combat-ready soldiers who fought stoutly against them and in spite of a fatwa being in place for an Ottoman global jihad. As a matter of fact, the Turkish president Ataturk was very bitter on this account. He had complained about it to uh, Mohammed Iqbal Shehdai during the latter's visit to Turkey after World War II. During the war, Indian POWs from British colonies, a majority of whom were Muslims, were moved to Winfstock camp near Berlin. It was known as Halbmond Lager or the Half Moon Camp, a befitting name because it was a camp exclusively for Muslims. The Ottoman Sultan was keen to recruit the Muslims from the POWs to fight for the cause of Islam, which he requested of his German allies. Following this, a variety of propaganda measures were carried out in the camp to entice Muslims to join the Turks and wage jihad against Britain and France. It was known as the Jihad Experiment, carried out under Max von Oppenheim, a special paper which spread anti-British sentiments was published in Urdu as well as in Hindustani, titled Hindustan, and widely distributed among the POWs in Inderlagar or the camp of Indians, which had mostly Muslims, but also some 80 odd number of Sikhs and Hindus. A mosque was built in a record time of about five weeks and uh, religious activities were promoted to the preference of Muslims. A cleric by name Sheikh Salih al-Sharif mentored the Muslim soldiers. Around 2000 Muslims had joined. But among South Asian Muslims, there were only a handful of Pashtuns, a couple of dozen. Not a single Indian Muslim wanted to fight for the German Ottoman allies. And it is not that these soldiers were British loyalists, since those with strong pro-Britain leanings had already been segregated and sent to a different camp. So it is important to look at facts, however, in consideration of all the facts related to a matter in order to get a clear and unbiased picture. Sarvesh Tiwari quotes some of the statements of the officers during the INA trials to make a case that they joined for the sake of Islam 
and with the hidden motive of sabotaging the effort. Firstly, it must be said that these statements cannot be taken on their content, instead on the intention behind which was to defend themselves against the charge of renouncing their oath to the king and waging war against the king. They had to prove that they had joined out of coercion or some other ulterior motive rather than for the independence of India or moved by Subhash Bose's mission because that would have confirmed the charges. And since they were categorized for prosecution as blacks, which meant that at the initial interrogation they would have admitted being fervently committed to Bose's cause and had to be dealt with severely rather than the whites and greys who said they joined due to other less honorable reasons. The blacks were faced with extremely harsh punitive action and their change statements too were not enough to save them. It's a different thing that later the sentences had to be dropped because of an unprecedented wave of popular public reaction in their support. So for defense during the court procedures, they gave legally tutored statements. In an interview with Asaf Ali, one of the lead counsels of the defense committee, uh, with a former POW, Captain Hari Badwar of 3rd Cavalry, who had not joined INA, had asked whether from the facts as known, the INA soldiers should not champion INA. And Asaf Ali had replied that they dare not take that line, as they would lose much ground in the country. He believed that even if congressmen were in power, it would have no hesitation in removing all INA from the services and that Congress would not hesitate to put INA leaders on trial when they came to power. So it is not surprising that INA soldiers gave calculated and ambiguous statements. Tiwari quotes Shanawaz's words from his autobiography to show that his loyalty was questionable because he said that he had joined INA so that he could wreck it from inside. This is however not the complete statement. What he had said was to sabotage and wreck it from within the moment we felt that it would submit to Japanese exploitation. In his trial, he had claimed this repeatedly that he tried hard to keep the rank and file out of INA and to persuade Mohan Singh to disband INA. He claimed that personally I wish to get out of the INA but I had committed myself too far and could not rest, retrace my steps and that he set about to find such men for the INA as would be willing to fight the Japs if they were dishonest with us. He elaborated uh, stating that I also realized that if on going into India, which was probable due to poor British defenses, the Japs were dishonest, I would be much more useful to my country with a rifle in hand in India than as a POW in Malaya. Now, how would a few INA soldiers with rifles in their hands prevent the Japanese if they did deceptively turn against India and uh, Indians? To anyone, this would sound bizarre. Unless one understands, it is stated in the context of the charges against him. Even Prem Sagar gave similar and equally weird reasons. He said, if sincere and patriotic officers kept out of it, meaning INA, it would be quite easy for the Japanese to exploit their army. He explained, I finally made up my mind to join the Indian National Army because I felt 
that the Japanese were absolutely determined to go to India and if they were accompanied by a really strong INA, the Japanese would not be permitted to commit the same atrocities as they had committed in Malaya and other countries in East Asia and also if they did not honour their pledges regarding Indian independence, a well-armed and organised INA would be in a position to put up an armed opposition against them. So, this appears to have been the standard uh, line of defence. And Shah Nawaz never said that he joined for the interest of Islam, as Tiwari claims. He did initially get together a group of Muslim soldiers to discuss what their stand should be to protect themselves as a community. But this was the case with all communities. Muslims stuck with Muslims, Sikhs stuck with Sikhs and Gurkhas with uh, Gurkhas. They considered their communal interests. They resisted together the attempts to make them join and in the end made the decision to join also together. Most importantly, these moves and statements were made in the context of the time before the formation of the first INA, which the POWs regarded with utmost suspicion and were still weighing their personal situation options and opportunities, which is what happened in that situation which we heard about earlier in the Bidadari camp. But Shanavas makes it clear that he joined ultimately only because he decided to fight for his country. And this was a solemn pledge the group of Indian officers took after dwelling on the prospect for long. As they described, going round and round the question until at last setting an evening aside for the purpose, we met and examined the business methodically, item by item, point by point. R.A. Marshad testified at Prem Sagal's trial that we discussed all the pros and cons. We unanimously decided that under the circumstances, we all owed our allegiance to our country, meaning India. All the officers who faced trial were charged with waging war against the king. Shah Nawaz was charged on an additional count for the murder of an INA soldier for deserting INA. His name was Sipoy. Mohammad Hussain and Shah Nawaz ordered his execution. Dillo and Saigal also faced charges of murder for the execution of four deserters, all Hindus, Hari Singh, Duli Chand, Daryo Singh and Dharam Singh. But the interesting thing about Mohammad Hussain's execution is that the order was carried out by a Muslim battalion commander by name Khazin Shah. He got a Sikh and a Tamilian and a petty orderly by name Jagri Ram to fire at Hussain. When Jagri Ram protested, saying that he wasn't up to the task, he got another soldier to hold the rifle over Jagri Ram's shoulder, curl his finger around the tri trigger and shoot at Hussain. So great was his contempt for the deserter. So how can you pick out Muslim names, twist facts and say that they were not loyal? There can be no doubt whatsoever that Shah Nawaz gave himself completely to the cause of India's freedom. And this is not just in his own words, but also testified by some others who spoke of his devotion towards Bose and Indian National Army. It is really shameful to smear his name out of prejudice, whereas there were so many who had deserted INA, Hindu, Muslim, as well as Sikhs, Sepoys as well as officers. There was uh, Major Garwal in Gandhi Brigade 
he just walked over to the British side. He was second in command to Inayat Jan Kayani, who was Zaman Kayani's cousin and who fought till the end. British intelligence reports testify that Inayat Kayani held off the British Indian Army doughtily till the very end in a guerrilla war at a place called Palel Tamu. Many surrendered because they were simply in a bad shape without food, provisions or prospects of winning. The supply lines were cut off after the Japanese withdrew. Many soldiers did not have shoes. Many were stricken with disease and they had no medicines. The declassified files suggest that a large number of INA soldiers were actually disgruntled, disillusioned and disheartened and they did not want to fight a losing battle. Yet so many fought on right till the end or till their ends irrespective of religion. It is unforgivable to question their commitment picking out names on the basis of religious identity. Tiwari also mentions Captain Abdul Rashid's statement that his predominant objective in joining the INA was to serve the interests of Islam and safeguard the Indian Muslims from getting dominated by the Hindus and Sikhs of INA. What Tiwari doesn't tell you is that his lawyer was from the Muslim League. Initially, Muslim League stayed aloof uh, from the INA trials because they had unambiguously supported the British in the World War. But when they saw that Congress had engaged a bevy of lawyers to defend the accused INA soldiers, among them several Muslims, and coming across as the representatives of Indian Hindus and Muslims, they did not want to lose their relevance and uh, the opportunity to present themselves as representatives of the Muslims. So they also jumped on the uh, bandwagon. They provided their own defense committee to one of the accused and this man was Captain Abdul Rashid. So the arguments put forth for his defense are in consonance with the Muslim League's aims. Only that they are even more absurd than the other INA men, which said that he joined INA to thwart the Hindu conspiracy of ruling whole India at the exclusion of Muslims with the help of Japanese. After sentencing, uh, Muslim League claimed that Rashid had been a victim of religious discrimination. Tiwari also mentions the cases of Habibur Rahman and Mohammad Zaman Kiani, who went to Pakistan in 1947 and were involved in conducting the Kabaili raids into Kashmir. But in both cases, their joining Pakistan could not possibly be held against them. They were Muslims, perhaps in terms of insecurity, their communal instincts. They went where they thought they belonged. There was no INA that time and they had no prospects in the army. In the two years after uh, Subhash Bose's death, the communal situation in India had turned very vicious. In the post-World War II period, poised before an imminent division of the Indian Army on grounds of religion, choosing between India and Pakistan was regarded as an honourable choice for the military men. When these men went to Pakistan, they had Pakistan's interests in mind. Why wouldn't they? Is it expected that they would belong to Pakistan and pitch for India? Is that a realistic expectation? Then Habibur Rahman belonged to Bhimbir. He had a personal immediate stake to have Bhimbir as part of Pakistan. 
and kiani had joined at the time of the first timing uh, before subhash took charge he was a confidant of mohan singh but neither men had betrayed ina or subhash bose and by all accounts fought valiantly so what exactly is tiwari trying to say that muslims should not have been taken into ina or that they should not have been appointed to high posts according to their experience and qualification what exactly does he have a problem with would he much rather that indian muslims fought against us on the side of the british what foolishness and is he sure that desertions would not have happened uh, in an all hindu army or that they would have fought better when muslims were still uh, at that time part of our country and formed a significant portion of the army why wouldn't willing men be taken into ina and as if bose was greatly spoiled for choice he only had those set of men to draw from that were there when it comes to islam caution is well in place but prejudice doesn't help get anywhere realistically speaking only clear sightedness does to illustrate let me draw an example from history many times i have seen rajputs being reviled for having served loyally under the moguls when their co-religionists or say their civilization was on the other side but in reality such clear lines never really existed in the past and when such clear delineations did emerge in an enduring manner over time then rulers or military commanders had the opportunity to assess on which side they stood and did sometimes switch allegiance but measured against short term developments and immediate motives such switching of sides can only count as desertion now why they took the decision to serve at all in muslim armies under muslim rulers also had definite causes this is related to the design of islamic rule itself in india although in islam the mushrikan or idolaters are not entitled to thimma that is the status of protected citizens of an islamic state however seeing the impossibility of conquering a subcontinent armed to the teeth the hanifi law was applied in india whereby hindus were treated as the people of the book generally christians and jews who became entitled to protection by payment of jizya the conditions that it imposed were as we know highly humiliating they were not allowed to wear rich robes ride in palanquins be horseborn make music or take out processions use a chhatri basically anything that appeared defiant of the supremacy of islam and muslims and most importantly not allowed to bear arms the only way they could continue to be armed was by serving in muslim armies a recourse open to dhimis and had the added advantage of exemption from jizya christians and jews also served in islamic armies and so did hindus the alternative was to rush in blindly to war and be annihilated which also would be futile because militarily at that time they were weaker at least they needed time to regroup which islamic armies did not allow one defeat meant extermination and massacre of your entire country 
there were many who carried on armed rebellions as well from the margins of the cities. But when caught, they met with horrifically cruel fate. And in the end, their struggle was also fruitless because it did not bring long-term advantages. We hear about these rebels or lawless people in Islamic accounts. But clearly, they were not an effective force. Their societies also suffered because they dwelt outside the bounds of society and law, like for example the dacoits of British India. Whereas the Hindu groups that decided to serve the Islamic state, even in humiliating conditions, could bargain for advantages, though limited but uh, long term, and had greater success in preserving their social and religious values and even grow until they were in a situation to effect an overthrow of foreign yoke. But in the interim, it minimized conflict and losses and devastation and to put off bloody face-offs till the time it was inevitable. And when it came to that point, there were do-or-die fights. On occasions, they offered resistance to attacks of iconoclasts, like in case of temple destruction in Kashi in Aurangzeb's time, which saw gritty resistance by local Rajputs at every step, inch by inch, at each household. Timur Lane faced similar resistance from Hindus in Delhi. This was possible only because they were armed. All this is documented. And it was not just Rajputs. Many other Hindu communities and clans of all castes made this choice. Had they not done so, they would have been demilitarized and disarmed within a couple of decades, which would have had a devastating effect on the capacity of the Hindus to resist. It was a payoff to keep their Kshatradham alive, continuing to bear arms even if in service of the Islamic State. Martial character can get lost within a single generation. How rapidly Hindus as a population were disarmed and weakened in constitution within five decades of the 1857 rebellion is clearly seen. This is the reason there was this talk among Hindu leaders of militarization of Hindus to withstand Muslim aggression. Another example is of the Marathas. Most of the Maratha Sardars had been serving in Muslim armies of the Deccan. And even at the time when Maharaj Shivaji was building his resistance against the Mughal Empire and other Muslim powers, many Sardars continued to serve these Islamic states, even though beckoned to fulfill a larger calling of Hindu dharma. They did not instantly cross over to the other side. That doesn't mean they were traitors to Hinduism. They did just what soldiers would do by natural calling. This is the reason Shahji Bhosle was against Shivaji's defiance of the Bijapur Sultanate, because he simply saw it as waywardness. Obviously, he could not grasp the vision and purpose that his great son was born to fulfill. Shivaji's band of men were initially seen as traitors. He was known as a mountain rat. The rallying around this larger purpose happened over time. The outrage uh, that ultimately raised the indignance of the Maratha people to that level was the cruel execution of Chhatrapati Shambhaji. Even later, up till the time of Chhatrapati Rajaram and even Maharani Tarabai, we find them persuading the Maratha Sardars to join their cause. 
eventually they did but the reason marathas could put up a resolute struggle and fight back in spite of heavy odds was because they were seasoned soldiers there was this discussion thread sometime back on twitter where someone had claimed that the marathas were a poor starving exploited lot of peasants who fought the mighty moguls a very romantic version of the rise of the maratha people as half-wit subalterns fighting their oppressors but this view is erroneous on the contrary they were men with generations of soldiering uh, tradition a subaltern army can never put up this kind of determined resistance no matter how great and intense the force of their collective grows and neither were they underfed an army cannot fight without food on just inspiration marathas were in fact brilliant in resourcefulness and controlled sufficient logistical means to sustain the fight armies organized food if required through coercive means at times and neither did maharana pratap live on ghas ki roti he had considerable wherewithal to carry on a long term struggle they were not romantic fools and if it comes to that point a commander will negotiate a surrender instead of trying to make a wretched lot of men fight this is what happened in case of ina when their supply line line ceased as we shall see so these were the compromises through which hindus in the past preserved the martial resources of their nation and it is important to have faith on the wisdom of our ancestors how they negotiated these extremely difficult times this is the reason we survived whereas so many cultures were obliterated by the marauding abrahamic hordes it is something to learn from instead of using these instances to pick at the communities and derogatorily refer to past personalities like they do in case of the conciliatory approach adopted at times by the rajput rulers or shivaji in the initial period of building his power or guru gobind singh they were responsible for the welfare and survival of their people and preservation of their culture ye nahi ki josh mein aake jhok do sabko ladai mein but then why did not these men in muslim armies sabotage it from within one may ask this is on account of the principle of military which i talked about it is a kind of bind that military men operate in you break it and you are no longer a soldier if one began to condone such breach of loyalty in the military it could happen for every other reason tomorrow by anyone one cannot raise an army of deserters another way of saying it would be deserters are no good for any army savarkar makes it clear in the following words among his exhortations to hindus when he was asking them to join the armed forces one point however must be noted in this connection as emphatically as possible in our own interest that those hindus who join the indian red the british forces should be perfectly amenable and obedient to the military discipline and order which may prevail there provided always that the latter do not deliberately aim to humiliate hindu honor how about vice versa did muslims serve loyally under hindu rulers now there were some desertions and treacherous acts by muslims in 1947 in the jammu and kashmir state forces 
But it is important to understand that it was an extremely volatile and unstable political situation that time in a country in the process of being partitioned on religious uh, grounds. Maharaj Hari Singh's army was fractured along the lines of religion and some battalions of the state forces had already revolted. The British commanders of these uh, Jammu and Kashmir regiments had also rebelled against the king and encouraged the Muslims to rebel. There was confusion on what constituted their state or country. But less than two decades later, in the same Jammu and Kashmir region, a Muslim majority battalion of Jammu and Kashmir posted at a strategic location served unflinchingly in the 1965 Indo-Pakistan War and in all wars subsequently with Pakistan. Muslim personnel have served with unswerving loyalty. There were also desertions of Muslims from the Indian Army after Indian Army entered uh, the Muslim Principality of Hyderabad of Deccan in September 1948. But as already said, during the Hyderabad action, the Indian Army was in the process of division between India and Pakistan on grounds of religion. As Colonel Anil Athale has said, to call these acts as desertion would label the entire Pakistani army as deserters. It is akin to complaining about Muslims joining Pakistan. Take for example, Air Marshal Latif, Idris Hassan Latif, who was Chief of Air Staff, Indian Air Force. He served in the same squadron as Asghar Khan who joined Pakistan and went on to become the Commander-in-Chief of the Pakistan Air Force. Incidentally, Asghar Khan was strongly opposed to hostilities with India and tried to obstruct the Indo-Pakistan War of 1965 by constantly vetoing decisions on Operation Gibraltar. He was dismissed from service because of this. An interesting side fact. Askar Khan's brother, Captain Aslam Khan, was in the Jammu and Kashmir forces and during partition, he joined Pakistan Army. In November 1947, along with Major W.A. Brown of Gilgit Scouts, he played a leading role in inciting the rebellion against the Maharaja and also the so-called tribal rebels, which ultimately led to the control of Gilgit Baltistan by Pakistan. Now, Askar and Aslam belonged to the Afridi Pashtun tribes who were settlers and uh, not Kashmiris. They had served in the Maharaja's forces for almost a century but had deserted en bloc during the Indo-Pakistan War of 1947 and 48. They justified it by cooking up a tale of a supposed massacre by the Maharaja's troops of their people in 1947 of which there isn't the faintest trace of an evidence except the testimony of one Ved Bhaseen that has never been scrutinized. He was the Tista Sethalwar of those days. But a strong motive they did have. Their father, Brigadier Rehmatullah Khan, also retired from uh, Jammu and Kashmir forces, was an active member of the Muslim League. And he had been put under arrest, regarded as an enemy agent by the Maharaja when arms had been recovered from his associates. So there were a strange set of motivations and confused loyalties at work in that time which cannot be used for building an assessment for the normal 
course of things. Now there were reports of many ex-INA soldiers in Pakistan being actively involved in militant Muslim organizations and some reports suggested that many incidents of organized violence against civilians during the bloodletting of partition were committed by these ex-INA men. As already discussed, these men were not really professional soldiers but mostly voluntary wartime recruits who had not shed their social and religious biases. Neither had many of them joined INA for some principle but due to circumstance and the compulsion of circumstance was just the same on both sides for those joining INA as also for those recruiting them. Neither had a choice. So how is this a comment on INA's policy? Ex-INA men were not re-inducted in the regular army and having no future otherwise would have sought to be rehabilitated through their political or religious organizations. Why INA men specifically were found to have been involved in killings of unarmed and innocent civilians during partition, Holocaust is that the Muslim League had this as definite plan for them. And for this you have to understand Punjab politics in those days. Over 27% of the emergency recruits during World War II were supplied by Punjab, a figure of about 8 lakh able-bodied unemployed men, which was also a significant chunk of the electorate. The Nationalist Punjab Unionist Party had this insight and had been developing a plan of canal colonies to employ these men. But uh, the abrupt end of uh, the war took them by surprise and Muslim League looking to exploit the post for economic slump in Punjab tipped them to the post, moving in quickly to offer an instant solution to the economic dislocation suffered by Punjab villagers by recruiting these ex-INA men in their ranks for the cause of Pakistan. So they were hired as goons by Muslim League to perpetrate violence on non-Muslims in a premeditated way along the pattern of direct action day. They were not acting spontaneously. For this reason, ex-INA officers were engaged by Pakistani army to recruit these men as raiders for the operation in Kashmir which was conducted outside the normal chain of command of the army just like uh, Pakistani terrorist camps of today. So this had no intrinsic correlation with the INA chapter rather with the question of discipline itself and the violation of a fundament of the military. Once breach of discipline in ranks is countenanced and condoned a soldier is no better than an armed brigand. This is the admission of a Pakistani general. Pakistan learnt it the hard way. According to their own records, use of ex-INA soldiers for 1947-48 Kashmir operations had far-reaching and detrimental impact on the discipline of Pakistani army. Three years later, Several officers were arrested for the conspiracy to overthrow the civilian government. It came to be known as the Rawalpindi Conspiracy, the first in a series of coups that marked Pakistan's short history. Almost all of these officers were found to have participated in the Kashmir operations. This 
illustrate somewhat why ex-INA men were not recruited in the army, neither of India nor Pakistan. Reason is that irrespective of the motive of their fight, they were by definition deserters. When they fought their former colleagues at the Indian border, they were basically fighting their own former uh, comrades. That is a line that cannot be crossed in the military, no matter how lofty the supposed principle on which the soldiers may have acted. The principle of the military is unambiguous allegiance and unquestioning obedience to the force they have committed themselves to and not working against the unit at any cost. Because then anyone can start deserting on any personal principle. And that's why desertions are usually very thoroughly investigated, inquiring into all possible reasons and the people involved directly or indirectly. INA cannot be called an army of deserters, but definitely of the nature of a rebel force. Many in INA believe that as soon as they made contact with their Indian army colleagues, they would simply cross over and join them. But this, this did not happen. Both sides dropped leaflets beckoning the soldiers from the other side to join their cause. INA could not advance deep enough to drop these behind the British lines. But even if they did, it was not very likely that it would have brought out the response uh, that they hoped. The British Indian Army units fought very well against INA and the Indian soldiers who were fighting INA considered them as traitors who lacked the metal to fight. There were several cases where INA soldiers were shot by Indian Army soldiers rather than being allowed to surrender. This problem was apparently so significant that British command had to issue a special order to Indian soldiers to prohibit the practice. This strong Antipathy against the INA soldiers as a treacherous and unprincipled lot was primarily because of British propaganda that we talked about earlier. Accepting those who deserted the army back in service would result in grave compromise of discipline because it would lend respectability to acts of desertion. Leniency in treatment of acts of desertion is as good as encouraging it. Senior Armed Forces Officers, Lieutenant uh, General Sri Nagesh, Major General J.N. Chaudhary and P.V.R. Rao of Defence Ministry were unanimous in their opinion that INA personnel should not be reinstated in the army. Giving them pension also would have been demoralizing for Armed Forces personnel because that would be akin to rewarding desertion and would equate them with soldiers who had uh, served their army honestly. British propaganda had convinced them that by fighting on the British side, they were serving their nation. And the Indian political leadership also told them the same. But what they saw was a wave of support for the INA personnel, hailing them as patriots, which induced confusion in the sense of loyalty within Indian army ranks as to who they owed it to. This could be damaging. They could at most uh, have been given a freedom fighters allowance, but we all know the politics behind that, why it did not happen. It was there in the Congress recommendations, but Nehru did not implement it because apparently the British frowned at the prospect. 
So, how successful was the Indian National Army? Clearly, INA was not a force that could stand on its own. It remained an auxiliary force, dependent on the Japanese forces to break the British lines. Bose was keen that they should have received more intense combat training, but the Japanese were mostly interested in using them as sleuthing and sabotage units. They were not adequately equipped or trained for combat, but they did see combat at two or three fronts. Uh, contemporary British accounts disparagingly refer to these engagements, but later accounts uh, composed after perusing military records show that apparently INA did see intense action in some sectors and continued to hold out uh, against heavy odds of an unpitiable condition out of a stubbornness that can only uh, be from firm commitment to a cause. It was clear from the very beginning that they were operating under the greatest constraints. But in the end, they were done in by the Japanese, who refused to provide the slightest help in any way once they were themselves on withdrawal mode. In one case, a Gurkha ex-Havildar commanding an INA platoon was invited to surrender by Indian Army. He replied back, scribbled on the back of uh, one of these leaflets, Gentlemen, I do not come, and fought on until he was killed. Bose's entire concentration towards the end had been to somehow provide for his men, rallying the Southeast Asian community to produce basics like shoes and clothes for the men. He did not have the resources of a state to uh, support the war effort. The supply lines had uh, crumbled and the men were left hanging on a bare thread. In the end, they surrendered because they simply did not have the means to sustain the operations. A majority of the ranks were raw recruits and their officers did not have experience much beyond leading a battalion of commanding higher formations. But the most important factor behind the desertions was differential levels of motivation. I talked about this in the beginning that the ideal of patriotism evokes varying levels of commitment among men and can also be different for different individuals. This was the reason that some INA men endured the harshest conditions to continue fighting till the end. There are some heartbreaking accounts of men laid up with disease or disability saying that if they could just haul themselves up to hold a gun, they would still fight. On the other hand, there were those who buckled with much less and walked over to the other side. Many others abandoned the cause due to their individual motives. If INA had been supported by the resources of a state and sufficient logistics and arms and continued combat ops as the force of an exiled government, they would have perhaps over time developed into a fine force with the mind and structure of a regular force and absorbed into the Indian Army later. That is the kind of support probably that Bose wanted to win from the Russians. But all that now belongs to the realm of could have been. The Indian National Army today is therefore assessed by the Indian Army more as a case of learning than in terms of victory or defeat. One clear victory of INA was, of course, the 
after effect of their struggle. The INA trials sparked off massive unrest across the country. The feeling was so strong that congressmen, in spite of themselves, were constrained to provide legal defense for the INA men on trial, engaging some of the top lawyers uh, that time, Bhulabhai Desai, Kailashnath Karchu, Satesh Bahadur Sapru, Asaf Ali, and Nehru himself uh, donned the lawyer's gown after many years of giving up practice. The Muslim League also decided to make their own defense council to make hay from the publicity that it drew. Indians strongly identified with the cause INA fought for, which got men in the regular ranks of armed forces thinking about their loyalties. This had a direct bearing in the form of a series of mutinies, beginning with the strike by the ratings, that is uh, sailors and officers of the Royal Indian Navy and Air Force from the ports of Mumbai and Karachi to Madras and Vishakhapatnam and Calcutta in February 1946. The airmen too struck work at various places including Karachi and Kalaikunda in uh, West Bengal and it was clearly this from the words of the British themselves that led to their hasty withdrawal from India who actually had no intention to leave for a long time after the war and wanted to continue milking their prime colony to rebuild a shattered post-war England. There was a strong possibility, as Mujibur Rahman had said, that partition would not have happened at all. At least it might have been possible to keep the Muslim majority regions within an Indian confederacy. It needed a leader who had the vision to take the divergent and hostile factions together who commanded the respect of most denominations so as to reduce the Muslim League to a fringe element. There was only one man in India that time who had this kind of charisma and that was Subhash Chandra Bose. I end here with a thanks for your interest and the patient hearing.